0: Um, I'm Mukundar Raghavan, and today I am joined by uh, Professor Raj Balkran, um, who is a professor um, teaching and actually the curriculum uh, del- on the Curriculum Development Board at the Oxford uh, Uni- uh, Center for Hindu Studies. Um, Dr. Balkran has been, um, he's also a published author, he published uh, a book on Devi Mahatmyam, um in really regards to the narrative structure of the, the text, along with um, uh, larger uh, uh, connections to Puranic uh, narrative uh, frameworks. Um, he does, He's an experienced podcaster, actually. He, he spends uh, quite a bit of his time also doing um, the new books in Hindu Studies, which is a, a fantastic podcast. If you haven't watched it or listened to it yet, please go listen to it at any of the uh, podcast uh, apps that you find, which is you know Apple, Google, Stitcher, whatever, um, It's just it's frankly one of the best podcasts for information, knowledge, and um, really good conversations. Actually, um, so Professor Balkron, welcome to the podcast. How are you?
1: I'm fantastic. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Oh, yeah, it, it's our pleasure to be honest. It's been a it's been a long time coming. There's a there's very few people within the space, I think, that are actually doing consistent podcasts on like Hindu thought or Buddhist thought, or you know, any from from both a scholarly perspective and practitioner perspective, which I think is kind of lacking in. I mean, I hate to say, it, in the modern world, in many ways, people love the Hindu identity, but have no sense of what uh, the shastras or text or the tradition or practitioners actually feel and do and study and and know about so i mean your podcast is fantastic for for those dialogues especially because you deal with uh the new books that are coming out all the time
1: <laughs> indeed indeed so it's uh, the new books in hindu studies it's just officially been rebranded yesterday just by chance it's now new books in indian religions
0: yeah
1: and that umbrella affords more space for Sikhism, for Jainism, for Sufism or Islam in India. Uh, Same concept, same host, uh, more space.
0: Yeah, no, and that's fantastic. I I think that's uh, important, um, you know, for especially when we start thinking about like the syncretic nature of of most of those uh, uh, traditions, right? The the Hindu, Buddhist, Jains, um, you know, they kind, of along, they kind of give and take from each other in a much more uh, um, malleable way, I think. It's like the wall is there's, very thin.
1: There's a sort of, I think of it as an Indic ecosystem, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. That's there's right. an
1: ecosystem there, and they're, they're all offshoots of a certain soil. There's something in the air there. Obviously, there's um, vast differences between Buddhism and Jainism and Sikhism and Hinduism, what we call Hinduism. Yeah. Nevertheless, it's useful to think of them as from the same soil.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, there are differences and you're right. I, I just find myself a lot of times seeing them as so, those differences are somewhat uh, manufactured in some ways. In some ways they're real, but because just because so people are so willing to go to practice at a Hindu temple or Buddhist stupa or Jain temple and vice versa. It's just, there's this, this weird, flow of of people going between these things so I, I always find that like it's not such a clear-cut distinction sometimes especially when you get into like when you start looking at tantra and then you look at tantra buddhism versus uh Shaivai tantra it's so, so much of it's similar
1: it's a great example uh, and even yoga yeah right that's right so there, there are these uh there are aspects of indian religion indian religiosity that cut across the boundaries of what we think of as these distinct categories.
0: Yeah. um, And and so, I mean, I don't want to jump into all these conversations just yet because I think they're going to open up naturally, but I want to have a sense of of who you are. Um, You're you're you have a very interesting background, I think, from my understanding. Um, You know, you're you're uh, Indo-Caribbean descent um, who has jumped into the world of academia. Uh, in Hindu studies, how? What is? How did that happen? You know, it's a. I, I know a lot of uh, Indo Caribbean people, and even though they they they're they're Hindus, it's very rare to see many of them enter into the academic realm for Hindu studies, particularly.
1: Well, um, if you're looking for a sense of how I got where I got, good luck, because I'm still trying to sort that out. <laughs> Nevertheless. Um, no, I, I muse at you know how any of this is happening. Nevertheless, um, are you asking about my academic path? How I took this? I mean, route?
0: academic personal all connect, right? You know, at some point, like yeah, what, how did you how did you first how, uh, like growing up? How what was your interaction with Hinduism and and like what's your family background in that regard?
1: Yeah, so uh, I sort of, maybe the best place to start is by saying that um, for much of my life. For most of my life, um, uh, I really see myself as watching life, very much an outsider looking on. And um, at one point, that was um, dissettling, unsettling, uh, (laughs) dissettling. I just made up a word unsettling or (laughs) or disturbing. (laughs) Um, um, Disconcerting, I think, is the word I was thinking of. But now I find it a great boon. And so, the various um, identities that people adopt, whether it's nationality or ethnicity or religion or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It took me some time to realize really through the study of of Hindu philosophy that that this feeling that I had that these were just as garments, right? Uh That they weren't really who you are. That's sort of a sense that I always had. But sort of, you know, I landed in Toronto at the age of three, right? So Toronto has been my home since. And so in terms of my social conditioning, I'm more Canadian than anything else. But I had a Hindu backdrop, right? There was an Indo-Caribbean Hindu backdrop. Um, Not a particularly religious home by any stretch,
0: Uh but
1: nevertheless, you know, all Hindus know what Diwali is. All Hindus may have a a Murtis in their home, um, et cetera. And so growing up in Toronto, I, I inwardly really struggled because I was a different color, a different religion, and it was a, a deep sort of gash, in, in addition to all that, people have to struggle with. Mm-hmm. Even if you are the same gender, color, orientation as everyone else, you're still sort of struggling to find your identity and fit in. Um, but sort of uh, the, the ways in which I felt as an outsider in every room, that was just heightened over the years. And it it actually forced me to look inward and find out who I am and come to terms with accepting myself versus trying to now go be Guyanese or be Hindu or be whatever the situation is, be on the chess club or be whatever, the music nerd. Um, But nevertheless, these pieces are crucial. So there's an an uh, uh, Indo-Caribbean backdrop. There's a, a Canadian upbringing. And then there, for most of my my sort of, say, grade school, public school education, there was a very rationalist brain and a deeply spiritual, philosophical soul. Yeah. So uh, I've been blessed with wisdom. Some yeah. days it works, some days it doesn't. <laughs> right? I'd like to think I've learned a thing or two from the School of Hard Knocks this time around. But nevertheless, um, there's an, there was an endowment there. You know, there was an endowment there at birth. Um, and anyhow, going through and, and, and trying to process living in the world, living in the Western world, living so alienated from everything, Yeah. Um, there are many challenges, there are many hurdles to overcome.
0: Sure.
1: Uh, I found myself at the age of, I had intelligence as well, or so my grades say anyhow, but at the age of 22, uh, I enrolled in, after high school, I enrolled. Uh, at the University of Toronto, Victoria College to do a BA mm-hmm. in literature, English literature. I loved language, I love narrative. Sure surprise surprise. And uh, after two years, I dropped out of school.
0: Wow. Wow.
1: <laughs> I dropped out of school because uh, so said the so said the thought yeah. that I would I wasn't some people can do uh, university, some people can't. I'm just not cut up for it. Right, right. Uh, I just, uh, you know, I just, it's beyond me and I'm going to go and I worked and I had a wonderful, uh, uh, white collar job. I call it monkey work, sort of office monkey work. Uh, <laughs> and you know, in my brain, I thought I made it. Yeah. yeah. I, hail f- I hail from indentured labor, you know, ultimately right. uh, blue collar immigrant family growing up. Yeah. I'm like, great. I've got this white collar job. I'm fine. I'm good. But the idea that, um, I couldn't do it or that I wasn't cut out for it. Really what that thought was, that thought was masking an emotion that you're not worthy of this. Sure. Nobody in your line has ever gone beyond high school. Who do you think you are? How dare you do this? You can't do this. It's not for you. Sure. Unconscious, right? Not All conscious. Right. So I dropped out. <laughs> and I worked doing office monkey work for a couple of years. And then I had this manager, this, this lovely manager who said to me, you know what, Raj, we have a job that pays double what you're making now. And we can't even interview you for the job because the job requires post-secondary education. And we don't care if it's in Greek pottery. You really should finish (laughs) something. (laughs) Finish a degree. This will hold you back for the rest of your life, wherever you go.
0: Sure.
1: And... um, All right. I took her counsel to heart. And so I thought, okay, you know what? I'm going to go back and and study. Of course, I was afraid because I was old because I was like, you know, 24 or something and everybody else was like maybe 20, 21. I uh, thought, okay, I'm going to go back. I don't care about the career planning. I don't care about the degree. I don't care about the registrar. I just let me find one course that I can really enjoy because I know if my heart's in it, I'll show up, I'll finish and I'll figure out the rest. Right. When I started the English literature degree, my dream job was to be a, a high school teacher uh-huh. and work my way up to board education at the Toronto District School Board. That was my dream job.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so there are these pieces of literature, narrative, teaching, you know, they're all sort of these pieces are there. So I ended up um, thinking, what am I going to take? What am I going to take? I have this course, book, crossing out, you know, chemistry, crossing out biology, crossing out, you know, history. I had enough of that, you know, and like, what am I going to do? So this was the first Thursday in... 2004. First Thursday in September, 2004. And it was the first day that the University of Toronto was starting their courses and I still hadn't decided. So I decided I'll take the book home this weekend and I'll decide and next week I'll start my class. So I'm sitting there over my lunch hour from my oh. desk job in my dentist chair, because I was one of these people who had like a full day's work, a dental appointment, his lunch hour, and then a catering shift. I did cater waitering in, in those years as well. I was one of these people right i think i still am in certain ways um in my dentist chair i'm flipping through and then introduction to hindu religious tradition omg they teach hinduism at the university of toronto (laughs) what is this obviously i knew they weren't going to do puja or give you diksha or anything like that sure but i'm like wow they teach about hinduism at the university of toronto i didn't even know religious studies was a discipline Wow. I didn't even know that. So I'm like, okay, great. I mean, I'll enroll in this because there was a point in my life when I was uh, becoming more spiritual, sure. more actively spiritual. I was getting up in the morning starting meditation, and I really I was really thirsty. Okay. Right. And so I'm like, great, I could learn about Hinduism, figure out which practices are for me and not, figure out the truth about Hinduism.
0: <laughs> right, right.
1: Um and okay, great. So when does the when does the course start? It starts today holy crap, I can't do this course. I have a shift tonight. Yeah. I called the catering office and they're always, always like, you know, numbers fluctuate. So they're always looking for people last minute. It's 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 the party planning scene. So sure, sure. You know, so, I, you know, and I was terribly responsible. So I would never want to cancel a shift or call in sick. So I call them just to kind of put my feelers out. The owner answers, hey, hey, Raj. Yeah, hi. And he says to me, do you want tonight off? And they say, what do you mean, do I want tonight off? You guys are always looking for people. We have extras booked tonight. You want tonight off? Uh, yeah, actually. Okay, so now I'm convinced that there's some divine intervention going on here. I'm like, okay. I show up at the class. Uh, I loved it. I stayed for that whole year. It's the highest mark I ever got in university. And then after that one year, I took severance from the company, went back to school, finished my BA, I had two more years left, finish my BA. Then did a master's part-time over three years on the Valmiki Ramayana. Then worked again for a year. Then did a PhD at the University of Calgary from 2011 to 2014, 2015. Huh. And uh, I've been living the life of, uh, <laughs> of, a, of, 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 of a self-employed scholar and online educator since then. So that gives you maybe a little bit of a taste of the academic path.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's really interesting. I mean, uh, if I can, I would, I'd love to jump into parts of this. Um, you know, it, it, it is, um, it's is—it's a very sad situation, I think, amongst a lot of uh, the diaspora that much of the Indo-Caribbean community is kind of sidelined from the larger Hindu or Indian uh, quote unquote brotherhood that we have or sisterhood, whatever you want to call it. They're, they're not really included as well. Um, and I think there's like a lot of experiences from th- that community that that are so relevant to to us understanding how Hinduism ch- changes over over you know time and location right because the way the, Indo- in the Indo-Caribbean um, practice of Hinduism has changed very much so from the way it's practiced in India because um, it's integrated a lot of the you know elements from the Caribbean region from African uh, traditions Um, I mean, do you, was your family in that sense kind of connected to any of that?
1: Connected to
0: like, like the, the religion that was practiced by the Indo-Caribbeans, like Hinduism on the, on the ground, whether it was Guyana or Trinidad or whatever.
1: Yeah. So it definitely came from a Hindu home. There was a shrine in the home. Mm -hmm. We observed holidays such as Diwali or Holi. Um, As you know, in the West Indies, it's, it's obviously more North Indian culture. Sure, um, But yeah, well, I definitely came from a Hindu home, but th- there wasn't anyone who was particularly religious, in, in much the same way as many people come from a Roman Catholic home yeah. and may observe certain holidays. So that was definitely part of my background. But growing up, I, you know, I wished I was like a skinny white kid named Matt Andrews or something, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? And, and, and so it's it, this is just the reality. It took me a long time to overcome the various ways in which you feel um, that you're an outsider. And most of that is because you are demographically in many ways. Yeah. Um, and really <laughs> look what I end up doing. I mean, owning who I am and owning my spirituality, owning my heritage. It actually ended up being the very thing that I'm called to do with my life. Right. Not for the purpose of activism. Right. For me, I see activism as happening, happening as um it's a side effect of just being who you are, sure. And showing up in the world, right? But uh, but yeah, there are lots of pieces to the puzzle. But I was more or less a <laughs> a Westerner in brown skin who discovered he had a very Indian soul, and then ended up studying uh, and uh, Hinduism at the university, and also receiving a number of initiations with masters and practicing. And so there are all these pieces, right?
0: Right. I mean, that's I mean to me, it's. it's I mean, it's different for me because I grew up in a, my my dad is rather religious, right? You know, so um, he, from a young age, I think the first, gosh, the first thing I was reading was like Chitra Katas, you know, with uh, the Dashavatar you know, or whatever it is, you know, and I was, you know, like when I was a kid, I couldn't say certain, you No, know, you can't say certain be like Matya, Kudma, you know, like I, that was like the first things I learned. Um and then so learning that, learning slokas and stotras, you know, it was, it was a, in some ways, I think during my teenage years, I got turned away from religion because of the the very overwhelming nature of religion that was presented to me by my father. Um, but as you age, you know, it's it's weird. I think like in, in my later 20s and then 30s, I really got um, a lot out of what my dad had taught me. And I started to understand these things because i think a large part of our parents generation um did not understand how to convey ideas that were were embedded within our 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 stotras or texts or whatever it is and i think like having people now like you coming through who are able to talk about a certain practice or a certain idea in a in a way that's like Beautiful to be honest, right? It it, it it really conveys this 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 deep rationality and deep mystical spiritual experience that goes into a particular text or a particular stotra, whatever it is. And I think that's you know, that's something that our generation lacked. And so many ways, maybe that's why like I in similar like you were. I you know, I wanted to be someone else for a long time. You want to be like, you know, not not you. You don't want to be the brown skin only brown skin guy that's, you know, vegetarian, non, you know, worships apparently a cow, eats monkey brains, um, you know. <laughs> it's just such a weird world growing up in, you know, in America or, or Canada in the, in the 80s when you're not really part of mainstream at all, or at any stream, to be honest.
1: No, there's so, so much in what you say. One of the most healing experiences there were a number of them, but when I started coaching people one-on-one, even long before I started doing it formally, yeah, it sort of it was a way of life since about probably middle school, high school for sure. People would come for sometimes practical help, like math help, um, yeah. or they'd come because they were having a relationship issue or they're upset because mom and dad is like this or whatever it is. But it was deeply healing for me to meet people with issues I was able to help when I yeah. look at them. They're uh, straight, white, Christian, in-shape dudes who speak English and are able-bodied. They're the face of our culture. Yeah. And yet it was profound for me to learn how alienated some of them felt, the ones yeah. who needed the help, how much of an outsider they may have felt because maybe they weren't the jock or maybe X, Y, Z, P, Q, whatever. Yeah. And it really taught me that that feeling of alienation and being an outsider, it's not necessarily manifest in something tangible or visible to others. But that is the malaise of our age. No one feels that they belong. Everyone's trying to find home, and they're doing it in different ways. Some ways are functional, some ways not so much. But this deep sense of not belonging is perennial in our times. Um, there's, there's also obvious, obviously there are great... Examples of community and the power of community sure. and the power of a collective, whether based on religion or based on um, um, interests or whatever it is. Um, uh, if I can go back to your parents for a second, yeah, or the parents or whoever we want to, as representative somehow of a generation of diasporic yeah. brown people, um,
0: <laughs> we're all the same, right? I mean, that, that's <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course,
1: of course, of course. No, what I mean to say is. To me, I see a number of challenges there. There's the challenge of believing everything you know and starting life in a different country. Yeah. Different culture, different language sometimes, different religion, and then raising kids and then being caught between wanting to to not see your culture extinguished before your eyes and understanding that they're not there. Your kids are Canadian or they are American. They're also that. Yeah. So there's that challenge, that rift, but beyond that, if you take all that away, Hinduism is next to impossible to teach. And I say that as somebody who teaches Hinduism day in and mm. day out. Okay. My favorite analogy is that it's a jungle. I have three analogies that I use often. It's a jungle, <laughs> okay, right? Yeah, it's an ecosystem. It, w- clearly, you know this. It was a the 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 the, the umbrella. It, the, the term is an umbrella for everything that's happening in the South Asian continent, India, yeah. civilization, okay. India, that isn't an Abrahamic religion or Sikhism or Jainism or or Buddhism. Yeah. So it's referring to everything else, and so one doesn't. It is the backdrop? It's something that's lived. It's it's, right. it's an ethos. It's a culture. There are elements thereof, but it's difficult to convey the sense of a jungle, or right. or talk about how to define the jungle, um, and and so there 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 are a lot of challenges dealing with with um, Hindu scriptures, right?
0: Yeah. So so can I press on that for a sec? Because uh, I think that's actually an interesting point. Because do you think that is because for I mean, there's there's two ways to think about this. One is because we've we're adhering to a term that was kind of thrown thrown at a cacophony kind of, of different practices traditions that may seem connected, and they just added a term, so that's why it's like this jungle. Or is it? Do you actually think the nature of what we now term to be Hinduism? to have been that jungle, right? I, I mean, it, it's a, well, it, one, I guess, is a construction. What, the other one is a natural um, nature. I mean, a, a natural nature, I mean, a, a natural, like, um, growth of what the, I, the, the, the foundation of something is, I guess.
1: There is a profound diversity um, across what we may call a, Uh, Indian religion. You may have a Vedantin who's not so keen on the Bhakta and their practices and vice versa. You may have um, sectarian divides between Shaivas and Vaishnavas. You may have tantric practices that may be too left-handed to be integrated. You may have tantric practices that have been appropriated now by the Vedic priests such as the Nyasas or the Paranapatishtha of the Murti. And so... A, there is a luscious and dizzying diversity at play. Mm-hmm. B, it's a moving target; things change in time. And if you're looking, if you're looking to different strata of this archaeological dig, there, people struggle with the with the complexity of of, of data, and they struggle with the the dynamism over time. Yeah, you're yeah. looking at if one was to say, oh, "Wow, I just want to learn everything I can about." Native American religion.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How many tribes are there or have there been? How many schisms have there been within each tribe? How have they changed over time? Sure. Right? And so, so it, it, Hinduism isn't a thing. Hinduism is a, a, a group of things. It's an ecosystem.
0: Right, right. So then how do you end up teaching it?
1: <laughs> well, because it's used as a word at the Modern Western Academy. Okay. So there are courses in Hinduism. There are there are people who identify as Hindus. Right. When you teach world religions, if you're asking why it's, I mean, we can't undo the fact that it's not no, used no, as a word. I, the,
0: no, what I mean is, uh, I guess I should have better phrase it is then if there's almost this. It's just such so, such a diverse and and like uh, jungle ecosystem. What are the essentials that one can teach, if there are any, that that you can reduce it, down to Hinduism? You know, like it, like think... like when Christianity, you can say, you know, uh, this is these are the doctrines. If you believe this, you're Christian. How do you do that with Hinduism? Right.
1: So it's it's it is clearly there's diversity and dynamism in in, in all the world's religions. Yeah. But nevertheless, when one teaches world religions as a class, however artificial enterprise that is. Um, it's, it's much more straightforward teaching Christianity and Islam. Right. Right? Not so much with Hinduism, because there's a founder, a central right. doctrine, and, and sort of a breaking away from what was before and saying this is what it is now. Whereas with Hinduism, it's the opposite direction. We'll take that too. We'll take that too. We'll take that too. We'll take that too. There's a syncretism at play. Right. Right? And so um, rather than teach Hinduism, is it a course on philosophy? Is it a course on caste? Uh, Is someone interested in ritual? Is someone interested in uh, nationalism? Uh, Is someone interested in Ayurveda? Is someone interested in, right? So so when you're in the jungle, am I looking at elephants? Am I looking at the flight patterns of birds? Am I looking at the viscosity of the sap of this this tree at this time of year? Am I looking at the insects? What is my interest within the jungle?
0: Right, right.
1: And that will be very clear. Uh, having said that, you can't be totally ignorant of the rest of the ecosystem to make sense of what you're looking at.
0: Right.
1: And so very telling exchange. I, um, I teach private courses online. And I had a student in one of my courses. Actually, no, she was a student at the OCHS at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, where I also teach. And she says, she says you know, Um, she says dr raj i really want you to create an intro hinduism course yeah this was just last month mind you and i said why on earth i'm thinking to myself intelligent woman much like yourself she's of south asian descent Mm -hmm. she's um uh western training western bent mentally and she's been studying for the last, I believe, five, seven years, various courses at OCHS and other platforms. And she goes, Will you create a, an intro Hinduism course? I said, A, wouldn't an intro Hinduism course be beyond you? A, coming from a Hindu home, but even forget that piece. Yeah. You've taken all these advanced Hindu courses already, more advanced Hindu courses. And B, that was my first thought. And my second thought was, Why would there, there are a number of platforms where you can get an intro Hinduism course?
0: Right.
1: And what she said, she, she said, I want you to create one because I know if you create one, I can make sense of the jungle. And after all these courses, I've learned different aspects of Hinduism, but I don't know how to put them all together. Mm. And so I thought about it and I thought, you know what, she, I'm sure she's not the only one. So then I created a course uh, over the holidays called the Hindu tapestry. That's another of my favorite analogies. One is, as a jungle,
0: right?
1: The other is a tapestry. A tapestry has various strands, right? And the design is more than the sum of its parts, but right. understanding the strands is useful. Right? Right. And so I thought, okay, well, let me, let me create a course to convey the way in which I think of Hinduism now. Right. And so I, what I do is I just convey the essential strands of the tapestry. Compartmentalize, look at the Vedic sacrificial strand. Great, forget that. Compartmentalize, don't completely forget it, obviously. Look at the philosophical Vedantic strand. Right. Compartmentalize, look at the devotional Bhakti strand. Right. Again, look at the tantric, alchemical strand, if you will. Sure. Um, 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 and then look at how they come together. Right. Right. If you want a more holistic vision, or if you're looking at a specific practice, like a puja, understand which elements come from the Vedic strand and Vedic ethos. It's a fire ritual, but it's a fire ritual uh, where someone may be singing a bhajan to the Devi in front of a Murti. Right. You see? And maybe the Yajamana wants um, some fruit. Right? Right. Um, and maybe the priest is using some Tantric techniques, as I mentioned before, like nyasa. And you see there are all these elements that have been folded in. It's a syncretic soil.
0: Sure, sure. It's not a,
1: now we're going to, it's not a, okay, now this is how um, Christianity is different from Judaism. This is how Islam is different from both. This is how Sikhism is different from the rest. This is, right. And so I think the challenge is that it's, it's, it's a backdrop religion as opposed to something that emerges from the backdrop.
0: I see. Okay. Okay, I mean, both those analogies are very, they work very well. I think they, they convey the, the unity and the diversity of the, of the practices or, the, or the, even the ideas. But, but I mean, in, in, in some ways, right? This is also what our, a lot of the texts do too, right? They, they, they are like, when I read the Mahabharata, for example, and we'll get more into the, the, the texts themselves, it's just, I feel like it's a codex. There's it's just layered upon layered upon layered like like even the, the names of the characters mean something in relationship to what they represent to relationship to something the story something to the Vedic past to the to some sort of tantric work there also it just is every text feels like it's this this like matrix of like ideas that all connect to each other. I don't know.
1: Definitely the texts. Because Hinduism is so syncretic, the texts that survive, that last, that that enjoy longevity, right. are the texts that are most complex because they preserve the very syncretism that the culture is comprised of. Right. Right. So the Mahabharata is absolutely foundational. If ever in history there was a thing called Hinduism that was born, it was born during the churning of the Mahabharata. Yeah. Yeah, the the Mahabharata is basically saying it's the bedrock of what we think of as as Hinduism because what's the Mahabharata's project? The Mahabharata, well, you know, you have a very different ethos in Vedic religion. Right. And you have a very, very different ethos in Vedantic or Upanishadic religion, right? And the Mahabharata's job is to integrate those great yogic, ascetic, otherworldly ideals but no, 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 don't fully renounce. We have to domesticate them, and we need the Vedic platform, and we need caste, and we need the fire rituals. And, you know, and so the Mahabharata is reconciling. Right, right. Or preserving tensions. Right. And that line about what is, what is, uh, um, what is here... Uh, what is
0: here... What is found here can be found elsewhere, but what is not found here can be found Is anywhere.
1: nowhere at all. And the reason why it's in the first and last book is because it's framing the whole Mahabharata, that idea.
0: Yeah, yeah. They
1: repeat it twice. It's framing. That idea cradles the Mahabharata. They're like, look, we are a cultural encyclopedia. Yeah. And we are doing our best to patch together various ideals um, and, and really uh, uh, crystallize... Um, um, Brahmanic ideology uh, that has to integrate ascetic ideals, whereas right. in other traditions, ascetic ideals threaten the very existence of Brahmanism, Buddhism, Jainism. Great examples. Right. right. So the is saying, let's find a way to fold it all in. Let's find a grand vision, vision of, of dharma or ethics or morals, and um, let's 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 Trojan horse various uh, discursive materials, but not without great care and consciousness about what is placed, where, in whose mouth, in whose ears, and why.
0: Right, right, right. So so jumping off this to your kind of, your key research area is narratives, right? So you spent a lot of time on narratives within not only the, the Mahabharata, uh, but very, uh, I mean, Puranas generally. So how did you get into wanting to make this, the particular study, That you wanted to kind of become an expert at to be you know
1: well i discovered inter-hinduism the day it started and it pulled me back into school so i'm like okay well obviously i have to study religion hinduism so i did a degree in religion i studied a great deal of hinduism then i took sanskrit classes for the rest of my undergrad undergrad (laughs) 2.0 and uh and then um i think it was my final year Uh, I had a course on the Ramayana with Aarti Dand, who, by the way, has a fantastic Mahabharata podcast that you have to check out. Um, 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 And not just because I helped her set it up. She's a fantastic storyteller. (laughs) (laughs) I get no kickback from that at all. Um, But I took a course with her uh, on on the Ramayana, the Valmiki Uh Ramayana. And um, my first love was English literature, right? I love narrative, I love stories. It's how I understand people's lives. It's how I understand culture. My brain is a story brain, right? Yeah. (laughs) So I was so gripped by Rama and this whole deal with how how passively and and stoically he, he accepts exile on his coronation day. My synapses were on fire because I knew this was extraordinarily important archetypally for Hindu culture. And maybe even universally and I wanted to make sense of why on earth would you know the center of polity of society on the day where he should be enshrined as a center thereof should now say okay dad no problem you made a promise I'm gonna just take those bark you know jeans and <laughs> you know I'm gonna eat nuts and fruits and you know we're not gonna procreate for 14 years so clearly they're chaste, right we're going to live like yogis now, bye, all the best. So this, this I couldn't shake the need to understand what the hell was going on there.
0: Right.
1: <laughs> and so my uh, the following year, I I, I undertook, a, I began a master's on the Vamikira trying to understand what the hell was going on there. And um, there were two parts of the master's that ended up in two different journal articles over the years. One was uh, 2012 Journal of the American Academy of Religion, Violence in the Valmiki Ramayana, saying violence is fully justified. Mm-hmm. I worked with Dr. Walter Dorn at the Canadian College of the Armed Forces. He does defense studies. Okay. And he's, he's big on just war theory, right? Right. And so we looked at just war theory and we were like, whoa, the Valmiki Ramayana validates all of the criteria of just war theory, but it's in the narrative, it's in the plot, it's in the, 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 the diatribes. Sure. So this is what I show: violence is fully legitimized. But the last piece of the thesis, which I think was my favorite, was that violence is never fully legitimized. <laughs> They're never fully okay with it. Right. There, there's a major problem. So yes, let's let's legitimize the the bloodshed um, uh, of the the warrior and the king, but let's also say that bloodshed's never really okay. Yeah. And so that famous scene where where Rama kills uh, Valin from hiding. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: And he uses a justification: "Oh, we're allowed to hunt." And you know that's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. The the, the author Valmiki or whomever is saying, "What's the difference between the the warrior and the hunter?" Look what justification he's using.
0: But it, 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 just on that point, I I mean, I hate I hate to interrupt it, but I, it's like something I can't let go because it's it's so beautiful, right? Because Rama goes through all these defenses. And Vali just shoots them down, and then he, and then Rama's final response is, "Well, you're an animal," and and then there's no there's no response to, to 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 make you feel whole about it. it, it, it Vali because, leaves you hanging with that. The, because
1: that is precisely the intention of the text. Yeah. To rehearse the justifications of violence as we need to. Yeah. But show you whether you're a king or whether you're a hunter in the name of a himsa, you're going to hell. Yeah. I'm speaking, you no, know, no, right. No. I'm speaking metaphorically. This is how I teach, right? Like it doesn't matter. There's this sort of um, uh, categorical values of all time in space. This is, I, I, this is ascetic idealism, right? Yeah. Non-violence, non-violence, non-violence. Look at you. You're, you're killing him from hunting. Another really, really important clue very important clue, is the whole bija of the text, where Valmiki births verse. Yeah. But he births it how? Because he's so piteous over the violence of the hunter. Yeah. He's cursing violence. The Valmiki Ramayana has a subversive but important curse to violence. Yeah. Coded throughout. And, 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 and renders the state dystopic. Rama's never happy there. He has to give up his wife. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's right.
1: And so that, that problematization is held in tandem with the valorization of the state and the warrior's duty. It's, it's purposefully preserving a paradox. Why? Because life is paradoxical. You yeah. cannot have a logical resolution. Life is messy. Yeah, and, and the epics they do that bar none, and I think why they're afforded the opportunity to do that is because they they, they merge um, on the backs of these two very divergent ethoses, the Vedic and Upanishadic, and to reconcile them is more than just reconciling Hinduism or, 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 or safeguarding Brahmanism from 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 you know, um, it, it's reconciling something about the human experience.
0: Right. Right.
1: Concerns of the inner. And the concerns of the outer, right? Right.
0: No, no, I, 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 I totally agree here because I, 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 you know, the the story of Valmiki and and uh the two two birds being shot by the hunter is very much emulated in the Mahabharata with Pandu's killing of the and, and the two deer, right? You know, and the, and the story both takes off in many ways from that one incident, right? Is where where the Valmiki creates poetry kavya with the with this sorrow we he shouts out and sings um and and pandu's creates basically the conundrum at the heart of the mahabharata which is the the legalese of are these actually my children are we all bastards you know i mean it's it's a it's a it's a beautiful dichotomy here because it sits there that i think both both the texts i think are ultimately right they both abhor violence a violence at the heart of of this is wrong. Ahimsa, paramo, dadma, you know, that goes into many times. Ahimsa, paramo, yabniha, all this other stuff, right, in the Mahabharata. But the beauty I think it comes down to is what it's saying is ultimately karma here is the ultimate uh, reason why violence is terrible. Because there's every action, even if your intent is good, creates some response and even if you kill because you as a king have to kill there's some even though the text say sometimes you have no no sin is incurred none of this in, is incurred it's there it's still present throughout the entire uh, uh under undertone of all of it all so i, I think kadama becomes like this this underlying power that energizes why even non-violence is better than violence but you know yeah i mean that's just a thought so,
1: so I think that's true. In insofar as karma or this idea that we had, there are consequences, yeah. metaphysical consequences. This comes from the the Upanishadic or Vedantic sure. worldview, right? And this needs to be integrated into the fact that we need violence to survive. We need yeah, violence 100%. to eat. We need violence to protect our state. We need violence to enforce the law. The pragmatism of violence cannot be dispensed with. So I think the plot thickens in that the text abhors violence and the text fully legitimizes violence, and that's why at every turn the Mahabharata has to goad and 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 assure Yudhishthira that it's okay, there, there, dear, you're allowed to be a king. Please go be a king. You're not a yogi. You're not a sage, sure. and this is why Krishna comes up with this profound, profound reconciliation. It says, you know, be. A sage with your 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 head and your heart. Be a soldier with your hands and your feet. Do both. Yeah, this the profound. But he needs to come up with the reconciliation because the text can't be allowed to only abhor violence. It also fully legitimizes violence. God Himself is saying, "Go, murder Absolutely. your gurus. It's fine."
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's uh, you know. It's always so difficult to talk about these texts. Right. Because it's because it, it, why? because I think there's it doesn't give you an answer. It tells you you got to figure this out.
1: So so my entire message about in this vignette of our conversation is the text Dharma is to preserve paradox.
0: Yeah, I 100 percent agree.
1: It's not the reason it can't give you an answer is because there is no categorical answer to be given. It'll depend on the person's situation, right? And,
0: but also on the flip side, here is where you end up with the you know we get into the nirviti part, uh, marga of So much of this, right? How do you break free of this paradox? Is there's do you know only... what
1: do you know what I call this? Do you, I don't know if you've I don't know if you've it, it's neither here nor there, but in. Uh, in uh, the first book, The Goddess and the King in Indian Myth, it was right. essentially, um, essentially it was uh, just my thesis. It was reworked. Yeah, yeah. But this I call the dharmic double helix.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. You call it in your book 100%. So yeah.
1: what, no, what I mean to say is, apropos of our conversation, yeah. you have a double helix is where there are two strands that are, they never touch. yeah, But they're intimately intertwined and they function as one entity. And this is Nivritti Dharma and Pravritti Dharma, and right. they're woven. The DNA of Hinduism is a double helix, right? And they're woven in the Mahabharata. The Mahabharata has to come up with these terms to talk about world affirming religion and world denying religion.
0: Well, oh, and so yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I apologize.
1: No, so for me, that tension of the Dharmic double helix, that is just um, that is not going anywhere because we need both sides of that,
0: right? It, but but that tension I think is goes as far back as you can go into the Rig Veda too. Like it, it's there from, from how so? Like even the Purusha Sukta. Like if you go, uh, it, it goes through all the how the Purusha comes into being, and there's the, these lines that come there um, where it says, uh, 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 Right? There is no other way to get immortality but through knowing that Purusha. Right, and it goes through all these actions that are happening, you know, uh, th- and everything that happens, and it just comes these little little snippets throughout the Vedic text. Whether you read Hiraṇyakaṣāyī Sūkta or Sūkta or any of these larger suktas, or even the text, there's always these hints about like, there's yeah, all doing all this is good, but there's one way out. It always seems like there's something uh, by out they use usually connected to immortality um I I, I and it depends on one's uh, I guess I guess sympathetic view as to when you approach these texts too But
1: well, the the, the Purusha that strikes me as uh well it's it's profound um and gripping but it strikes me as an unabashed celebration of sacrifice and the primacy and necessity of sacrifice
0: Yes, but it also has I mean, in in, in in the chanting right it there's there's these two lines where it goes it repeats twice and it, it, it connects to when it says you know uh um, and it goes all the way through and the, and then it goes um and I, have, I haven't chanted it in a minute so I forget the exact part but after it goes uh, after it goes through the brahmana mu so and then it says um, Basically, it breaks down to the idea that there is only one path to immortality and it is, it is by knowing that Purusha that is all this, that one finds that path. Um, and, and, and everything else, it will lead one to, 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 to whatever it is what we're doing, right? Um, so I, I always find that like when, um, it, it, well, these tensions exist from the time of the Vedic is, is just my point. It's just that these tensions are kind of embedded in the very base of of um, all of Hindu thought, the nirriti uh, uh clash.
1: I think they're perennially human, right?
0: Sure, sure.
1: And so these are problems that won't go away and these are issues that exist in, in, in other religions as well and they become sort of amplified and, and consciously exposited in the in the Mahabharata in particular
0: well I mean um, I don't know if I'm gonna say they exist necessarily in in the formation in other religions I, I think many other religions don't have the that outwardly contradiction here because the the religion itself will give you the out vis-a-vis you know just believing right this is not belief issue like praviti niriti is not belief issue this is like engagement in the world issue, right? You know, knowledge issue connected to once you know all things are one, how do you behave? You know, should you act, should you not act? Should you should you be in the world? Should you not be in the world? And and that's where that tension is like for, for Christianity or Islam, it's 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 just God's here, you worship, you're good to go. Um, but that that doesn't work that doesn't play in Hinduism because of because of karma, right?
1: Well, certainly very different worldviews with that question.
0: Yeah. So I I mean, in that regard, like, so you get into your narrative work and study. Oh yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So so this is the problem with organic conversations: is like you have to make sure we connect it back because.
1: So uh, it's always about the scenic route. So I I I was I was um, I was um, uh, I was seduced by the Valmiki Ramayana and I ended up studying it and I did it. I worked. I worked more or less full-time, so I did I did my degree half-time. And then I finished in 2010. Yeah. And then I went back to the workforce for a year, and I worked on campus at the University of Toronto uh, doing more monkey work. A bunch of monkey work, uh, a bunch of hospitality work, a bunch of teaching. Uh, I don't know how it all fit into one life, but it did somehow.
0: <laughs> I mean, was this but, like a conscious thing, or, or was it like, because you needed to work to make money, or was it just like, I, like, I didn't even know you wanted to be a professor yet.
1: I I wasn't sure what I wanted if I wanted to do a PhD. Yeah. Um, long story short, I had applied uh, too early probably too early into my master's at the University of Toronto right And for, for, for a variety of reasons that I will not go into on this podcast, my application was not accepted right. And so um, I think that was demoralizing. And also it, it occasioned me to doubt my path
0: right. and
1: doubt whether this was the right path for me and why was this door closed to me? And then, um, so because of that, I was certain that I wanted to be professor of religion of Hindu studies, of Sanskrit yeah. literature, whatever, of uh, comparative religion. I knew that that's, I felt that very strongly after I finished my BA. <laughs> Um, but that really occasioned me to do a lot of soul searching. Right. And to find, well, is this really what I want to do? I actually proposed a project on the valmiki and Mina as a continuation of my master's work. And then, you know, I thought, okay, well, let me go work a year and decide because what does one do with a master's in Hindu studies? Yeah, yeah. One do, do with that. What does one do with that? Like, and then so I worked for a year. Um Managing grants <laughs> for, the, for the University of Toronto. Long story. Anyhow, I did a bunch of admin work for the UFT over the years. Uh, anyhow, uh, a colleague of mine from my master's program came back from a semester at Calgary. Yeah, and she goes, "You know what? You should consider working with so and so or so or so." I'm like, "Oh, I never even heard of the program. They're only these people." Yeah, and then um, uh, I look on the website and I discover the scholar named Elizabeth Mary Roman. <laughs> Brilliant, one of the one of the brightest people I've met. Her her mind is is quite sharp. Um, uh, but more than that, I mean, I, I value her intelligence, but more so, I value the fact that um, a she studied Sanskrit narrative, and yeah. b she, much like me, is sort of trying to correct this kind of bizarre slicing and dicing legacy of how Puranas have been studied for, for since colonial times. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And so she's, you know, at that time, I didn't consciously know why I gravitated until I had to write my method and theory chapter of my dissertation. Mm-hmm. But I knew that she was a gal for me. Like I just knew that, you know, I never in a thousand years thought I would go live in Alberta or really mm-hmm. anywhere else. And I'm like, you know what? I think that's the person for me. and That's a program for me. It's relatively short. I'm getting old, <laughs> um, and they just, it felt right. And it felt right to stay in Canada for some reason. And I ended up leaving the following year, 2011, and I did the PhD with, with Beth Rollman at Calgary. And I came back 2014 and finished my writing in Toronto. And I realized there was a text that uh, I received a number of initiations, but one of the texts i received initiations related to is the Chandipat or the, huh. the Devi, Devi Mahatmya. It, it dawned on me one day, and you know, for me they're they're different. I mean, when you're when they're different, the mode of uh, and analyzing music theory and being moved by music are very different.
0: right Yeah, 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 that's yeah, right.
1: But but it dawned on me that, oh, the Devi Mahatma is framed by a king in Forest XL. Oh. That was that whole thing I was wrapped up with in my, in, in my master's about the Valmiki Ramayana. Yeah, yeah, Let's up with these kings in forest Excel? And by the way, if ever someone is hunting and there's a deer involved, they're in yeah. trouble. You know they're in big trouble <laughs> because, because the deer, for me, represents Ahimsa. It's yeah, a herbivorous, yeah. uh-huh. timid animal. So the minute the king goes hunting for a deer is the minute that Poverty Dharma is encroaching on niverti. Yeah, yeah, is the minute there's trouble. Exactly, (laughs) It's the minute the gods are conspiring uh, to teach the king a lesson, uh, to teach the king the power of ahimsa in one way or another. But um, oh, but I'm like, why on earth is a devi mahatma framed by this exiled king in forest, uh, um, uh, mouthed by a sage? That question launched my dissertation. That question, answering that question, became. Uh, my first book, actually, yeah. Goddess I, the King and Indian Myth. I
0: have that right. book. I have it on Kindle because uh, I couldn't uh, get a quick. Fine, no read, worries. Uh, on uh, paperback, but uh, you know, there's an observation I want to I, I want to make is um, uh, our conversation is very much like a Purana. I feel like, or a Mahabharata text, right? It's it's like we're like it, you know the text starts off with uh, you know. You know, Ugrishava going a story
1: within a story within yeah. a story, but would we have it any other way? Honestly? No, no,
0: it wouldn't. Because, but, but I feel like it, it goes to show how naturally the either the author was was writing about it or capturing these stories because, like, I mean, it's a framing narrative, right? It starts with, well, you and I are going to have a conversation about about stuff. And then suddenly you talk about a particular thing, and then I'm like, "Excuse me, you, you just mentioned this. Can we talk? Go down this rabbit hole?" And then we close that rabbit hole. We go back to where we were, and that's what the Mahabharata is like. Like all these, even the Puranic narrative storytelling is, "Oh, oh, sage, I'm going to tell you something." And then, this, and then, in the middle of the sage telling him something, it's, "I have a question about something you just told me. You remember you told me a couple lines back? Can we go back and talk about that full story?" It just but i feel like that's what we do with, and conversations that they occur naturally that's what happens right
1: without question without question
0: so a, a part of this comes down to like these these you know the talking about how the colonial viewpoint is these are monstrous narratives it's well if you talk long enough anything you you talk about because it become monstrous it's just going to go like <laughs> well, I, th-
1: I think that Similar to talking about other world religions, where there's yes. a founder, they're very—it's very—they're uh, uh, very left brain, yeah. when you teach them. There's a founder, and however artificial that may be, yeah, it's a founder. These are the teachings. This is where it comes from.
0: Yeah.
1: and with Hinduism, that's not the case. So when you're looking at texts like the Puranas,
0: yeah,
1: clearly they're patchwork quilts, right? But I can see that they're patchwork quilt there's there's method to the madness there there it's um you're looking at, a, at an ancient mansion that's been renovated over centuries sure. there's method to the madness clearly there's there's there there are there are different diach- diachronical strata but do it for a variety of reasons I means the colonial scholars decided to say well hey there's a there, there there was a core Purana in there and there's a bunch of bastardization that we have to sift through right. to figure it out who corrupted who corrupted this file. Right, right. What they fail to understand is that the most recent software is the most up to date. The additions yeah. to the text, right? Yeah. Right. It's the most renovated. It's the most up-to-date software. And and the things weren't added willy-nilly. There's a great deal of thought in terms of what's being put where in the text, right? So the Devi Mahatmya appears in the Markandeya Purana. Why, of all the Puranas, of all the narratives, why do they choose to place it in the mouth of Markandeya? And those are the kinds of questions I asked. It's not. It's um, it's either short-sighted or lazy to think, well, they just put it in the Markandeya Purana because right. they could. There's right. a there's, there's a reason why the Markandeya
0: Purana. No, and I think that's absolutely right. I, I think, uh, you know, one of the, and and I, well, I'm going to deviate back to one other thing right now. You know, so you said Diksha, you've gotten Diksha in in uh, in, in many, in, in a few traditions, in a few paths. Like, what was your, you know, was your spiritual journey kind of similar to your academic journey? Like, did they fall parallel or did one come first and then Re, uh, buttress the other, I mean, cause that's, I think to me is very, cause you're a scholar practitioner and many people are not. And, and that, you know, it, that comes with its own little, you know, interesting churn.
1: Yeah. So, um, I was always very, I would say spiritual. I probably wouldn't have used that word growing up, but yeah. it was abundantly clear to me that there was more to reality than meets the eye. Yeah. Like I was very rationalistic. I had, you know, I was one of these people who just had the mind to get decent marks and be lazy until maybe grade 11 or something. Just, uh, just gifted in that way. Didn't serve me for work ethic. I had to learn that later in life, but um, the left brain was working, but I I still, I knew that people were more than, than, than matter. It was just instinctive to me. Um, I, I knew that synchronicities were very real. Like these are real, like I didn't have a word for it. Sure. Right. This is, this is a real phenomenon, you know, um, I'm, 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 I'm i had this sort of inclination throughout my life um uh, organized religion certainly wasn't for me sure and certainly not you know um, I'm, I'm, I'm superstitious hinduism right <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> right Yeah. and then and then i i left school and i had a really 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 dark night of the soul in 2003 that winter was was one of the darkest i've ever had i yeah. was you know Darkness comes and goes. That's the nature of Prakriti. But um, um, a dark night of the soul, and I was not in a good space at all. And I realized that was just a bunch of emotional issues I never dealt with. And I was just, you know, I was like on a path of utter self-destruction. And then I said, this has to shift. And I decided to get up in the morning, every morning, and do some kind of practice i was hungry for knowledge about Mm. mantras i was hungry for philosophies it's so ironic much like some of my uh uh, western associates who may have indian souls it was so similar that i go and i find a a, a book published by a westerner about indian mantras right like this is really cool this is really interesting so i was i was hungry to deepen my spirituality and, and leverage my god-given wisdom and insight but also to ameliorate my malaise and and, and heal my soul i thought well why not start with what's closest to home right so i was finding books about uh indian spirituality and all that and that was uh, around the time where my manager said you really need to go back i I, shortly thereafter i got this job and about Mm -hmm. six to nine months in the manager said look this job pays double Right. It's a sales and marketing job. I'm like, I've never, taken a, I've never taken a business course in my life. I'm not doing a sales and marketing job. She's like, you'd be perfect for it. And it pays double. What the hell's the matter with you? Right. But you need to go. So anyhow, um, when I went to university for Hinduism, the woman that was supposed to teach the course, R.T. Dond, happened to be pregnant with her second child that year. Mm. Karma. <laughs> Daiva has intervened. <laughs> so she could not teach intro to hinduism another woman by the name of Gillian mccann who's now i think um associate professor at nipissing university in northern ontario mm-hmm. um she was a sessional she was finishing her phd at the time she was teaching that course so great so the course was over and we had sort of connection we had a meeting of the minds and we, we engaged each other and she happened to be good friends with a woman who yet ran a yoga studio right And at that yoga studio, an Indian master would come and give uh, satsangs on the yoga sutras, the Bhagavad Gita. And so ironically, it was through my academic study of Hinduism that I met my guru, my primary guru in this life. And I studied with him probably on and off day in and day out uh, from the time I met him in 2005 until um, I left for the PhD. And then he went to India because he knew his time was soon to be up, and he passed a year or two later. Wow. And that was that. He passed in 2017, but I had the good fortune of um, of, of meeting uh, meeting a wizard. <laughs> <laughs> I met the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> yeah. Gandalf. I met Gandalf. Yeah, yeah. I met Gandalf. Um, sometimes my clients make jokes and I'm like, are you Yoda? I'm like, honestly, if you met my guru, you would think I was Frodo, not Yoda, not not Gandalf. You <laughs> think I was Frodo. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so I was studying Hinduism uh, and doing my whole scholarship and admin thing and work thing. Yeah. But deepening my spiritual practice, deepening my daily sadhana. Um, deepening the repertoire of, 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 of mantra recitations and upayas and practices, learning also some, for lack of a better word, maybe esoteric knowledge, mm. right? And this was this was profound. I, I honestly thought it was the work of fables to have people who had clairvoyant ability or knowledge of the future or
0: yeah.
1: someone will walk into a room and they can know that person's chart but at a glance. I honestly thought that was the work of myth. Right in the pejorative for that are word sense. No, absolutely. No. and um, he, you know, one cannot begin to convey in words what a guru does for someone, right. a bona fide guru. That's right. One cannot begin to convey that in words, but apropos uh, our conversation, he gave me a glimpse into the mystery, into the possibility into what mastery can yield. Yeah. And wow. it's, it's, it's not of this world.
0: Right, right. It's,
1: it's it, the, the abilities you have are not possible scientifically. Right, right. Uh, nor will they ever be possible scientifically. Science need not be the measure of humanity. No, no the
0: that's human right. Human spirit
1: can be measured by empiricism is my view. But it's, it's meeting masters such as my primary master, teacher, guru, um, that I really got a glimpse into what was possible for human consciousness once refined?
0: Yeah, beyond the veil, right? You know, beyond the veil. Yeah. Of what we look. I mean, that's that's amazing. Um, I mean, I can tell you're 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 just still thinking about it, right? You know, like just bring him up is is, is powerful to you. Um, what was uh, what was the the sampradaya or tradition that he came from? Or more? it was a shakta? Was he uh, uh, you know Vaishnava Shyavite? Did he not have an affiliation?
1: He didn't have any particular affiliation. He's um he he was awake. He was a man who was awake and certainly he was in his first rodeo, so to speak. Yeah. But he, he taught in the Bhagavad Gita. That was very dear to him. Yeah. Uh, he taught on the Yoga Sutras. He initiated a bunch of us into um, um Chandipat, yeah. Devi sadnas, various sadhas. I mean, he was uh I don't know how to pronounce the words, but he was an extraordinarily um, aware, powerful tantric master. Yeah. And By tantra, I don't mean my 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 all too famous joke. Now is by tantra, I don't mean black magic, good sex. You know, <laughs> <laughs> right? If you if you want black magic, call it black magic. If you want good sex, call it good sex. I mean tantra, yeah. actual tantra. Yeah. Um. 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 And but he didn't have a particular sampradaya. and I would say that nor do I you know I studied I took initiations with different masters at different times for different purposes in different spaces but he by far was my 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 guru right yeah
0: yeah no absolutely no that's uh you know guru is very important it's uh almost almost necessary for any sort of true spiritual growth right um you know especially within the the, the text themselves kind of require it um but that's fascinating man I mean I I I what during the time period that you were learning the texts in the academic setting you were also learning probably the same texts in a much different setting with with your guru well, right so, what's so interesting how, is
1: yeah. what's interesting is that um no because for, it was interesting like okay? you know you take a bunch of courses as part of an uh, an, uh, an undergrad yeah you take a bunch of courses as part of a, a, a masters and they were very um they were fairly compartmentalized for me hmm. because the, because they were, they were very, very different enterprises. So it wasn't until the PhD that, and I had sort of misgivings. Do I really want to study the, the Chandipat academically? Like, do I really want to do that? That's kind of like, well, somebody has to, I guess, why not? Yeah, yeah. Why not study it? Why not? It needs to be done. Why not? But it wasn't until the PhD that anything related to my spirituality or my, my spiritual life was connected to my, you know, it's not like I did the the Valmiki because it was a great bhakti of Sri Rama. That wasn't my yeah, personal yeah. path. It's just like I was gripped by this narrative and now right. I have a better understanding of why. Um, but no, with my time, I call the mantriji. My time with mantriji was, it uh, was spiritual, spiritual, deep spiritual training. And my time at the academy was intellectual training and professional development and now I'm able to more so integrate them. Um, but you see, when you're teaching undergrads, you're teaching undergrads. When you're teaching continuing studies, you're te- teaching continuous studies. When you're teaching initiates, you're teaching initiates, and yeah. they're very, very different. Um, so I have this sort of pedagogical strategy that I call rigor without reduction. Or you teach things responsibly. Assuming you're, you're, you know, you're teaching in a public space or in continuing uh-huh. studies, you're teaching responsibly. You're not going to say the Mahabharata is five thousand years old because it couldn't possibly empirically be five thousand years old, right? You could say the tradition holds it as such because they have done the dating based on the alignments, and the last time we had this alignment was five thousand years ago. Yes, you can yeah. say that. Yeah, clearly. But one teaches, one teaches these texts. Within uh, the assumption is not that religion is just culture sure. and, and politics, right? There is a human spirit. There is a divine presence. Sure. Right yeah. there, and this is important. Whether or not folks can perceive that or experience that, folks who teach religion need to leave space for that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I could. God.
1: Right. I they need to leave space for that. So, so there needs to be space. For the spiritual element of religions even when we teach them at the academy in my view Um, but at the same time it's difficult it's easy for people to use their critical thinking and be reductionistic and it's easy for people to get swept up in some bhavana and not sure sure but but the it's difficult i find for people to do them both or integrate them in some way
0: no i i think that's i think that's fair um i mean I mean, from from here we could actually jump into the point about the you know we, I mean I, I really want to discuss because in the beginning of your book of uh, in, in in the goddess and the king you 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 deal with um, the current way or not the, well yeah kind of current but the historic to current way of of how the academia has dealt with not only narratives but like dating texts and thinking about what their role is, um, and, and on this point, is, is you know, is one of the things is you know, one of my big gripes is generally we have no sense of dating on any of this stuff. Most of this stuff, we have we have a passage here and there that might show you a certain a- anachronism that might have come in some other time period, or or like you said, built on the successive uh, uh, you know, software updates, you know, <laughs> throughout time, but um, I, I I always find it difficult to, 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 to have these random dates where like, for example, Brockington thinks of these layers in the Mahabharata or Ramayana, which I just find like the layer theory to be utterly stupid. Um, Just because I have like you, you can't describe what layers are. You have no criteria by which you build these layers out. I just don't understand how some of the pseudoscience and it does appear to be pseudoscience to me um, is taken to be like God's god's word and, and and you address it in a very respectful way by the way like i, I don't have any inclination to. yeah prepared.
1: i wonder my, my my wonder yeah what i'm curious about is where is the clearly you're unimpressed. (laughs) And, but tell me a little bit about that. What is it
0: that's, I I think the, I think the scholar the rigor is not there. What, what what happens is for a lot of these people is they take the maybes into realities, right? Like, oh, it could maybe this, and then they just assume it's true. Right. Uh, And and this is like, you know, a part of this is like, uh, I I think, so I come from a legal background. I'm a lawyer. I'm also, I, I did my master's in, in philosophy in Western philosophy, you know, be, basically continental philosophy of like Descartes, but I was, you know, those guys, um, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get the masters because I got really, um, let's just say inebriated and did not to decide to go down that path. Um, so I just, I was a lawyer. Um, I just don't find the rigor, um, in, in the way they, they reason through it. And, it just seems to be when they choose to have something be a certain way. There's no way to falsify what they what they what they they hypothesize. You know, I've yet to read a paper in which is it says I thought actually it was this, but it actually came out to be this. It's always, oh, I, I said this and look here I find evidence to show me XYZ. I, I haven't. And this is my and I've read you know whether you look at the pre-colonial literature I mean colonial literature or modern literature with Brockington and uh Eli Franco and these you know a, a lot of a lot of these scholars that talk this way I just don't find find it to be rigorous it's 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 not
1: they're not your cup of chai shall we say
0: <laughs> yeah well I don't drink chai but that's fine <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah,
1: they're not your cup of tea. Yeah, um, uh, coffee. Um, they're, they're, yeah. So for me, I can't really evaluate the merits of whether or not they're doing diachronic dissection successfully, mostly because I'm not inclined to do that. Period. I don't feel right. there are there are there there is a school of thought or there are principles for, for um, you know the the. the, the the method whereby they establish the critical edition of the Mahabharata or all the Sanskrit texts, for example, there are principles at play for um, slicing and dicing
0: um,
1: that are important. For me, my instinct um, has always been and still is that the text is the way it is for a very important reason and makes sense the way it is, even if it is, the issue is, Folks can't. This is this is the this is the difficulty. We think of like, oh, there's an article by an author. Oh, it's a, an article in the International Journal of Hindu Studies by some right. dude named Raj Balkaran. Great. He sat there and he wrote it, and that was that. What year did he write it in? Yeah. And the idea of multiple authorship over time. Th- then the instinct is, well, what was the original, and who added to it, and when? Sure. And I think that is the the tension. Where I go with that is, is 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 it's it's as I say like it's 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 wings added to a house a mansion, sure. it's um, uh, it, where the text ended up was purposeful, and so synchronic reading is what I do.
0: Right, right. It, it, it's it's the philosophy of Alpha Hiltabital. I, I always mess up his last name. Hiltabital. Hiltabital. Who, who and I think if, is yeah, actually
1: you yeah. rigorous. So, uh, f- for you know, he is he, he's he's beyond brilliant and yeah. uh, Archie Dand. I was teasing Archie Dand one day about um Alf Hiltebeitel and I was gushing basically. I said he's like the godfather of Mahabharata studies, and she ends up saying it on her podcast. And now I've said it on this one. <laughs> no, read, no,
0: it's true. I have read all his all his work. You know, like as much as I can grab and and he, he, he the rigor he brings to that table and the ability to sit down and be like. Let me actually think about why this text was the way it is, instead of being like, well, it, clearly because there's a disjunction, it must mean that it's not corruption, right? It, it, yeah, it's a corrupt text. And, and, and I think that's like you're you're coming at it from the point of view of of his of the way the the Bible in, a, in historical Bible studies is right. Like when you look at like for example, what Bart Ehrman does or or Ellen Pagels, and they look at their their, their that's ex- that's
1: exactly right. You've hit the nail on the head in terms of where that bias comes from or is perpetuated. Right. At the and I
0: and I think um, that, that makes sense for for the Bible, but it doesn't make sense for our texts.
1: Well, um, you know, the Devi Mahatmya, you know, these three glorious episodes of the divine mother and her her martial exploits to you know, quell the forces of evil. We all know what it's like to have a king on the throne that's sort of tyrannical.
0: Right.
1: <laughs> and we all, we all we all, want to invoke some higher power to overthrow them at some time. Right. Um, um, and these episodes are, are glorious and they are the Devi Mahatmya. But the piece in the beginning, and the piece at the end where there's a king who loses his kingdom and goes into a forest and then he, you know, he has a conversation with the sage and the sage tells him. And then at the end, um he goes off and worships the Devi, and his kingdom is restored. And then the Devi says to him, Look, I'll not only give you my king your kingdom back in this life, in your next life, you'll be the son of the sun, Surya. Yeah. I'll we'll make become, you the Manu of the next age. You yeah. become Surya's son. So what I do is those little pieces that everyone says a flimsy frame. Yeah. Just to latch it into the Manvantara discourse of the Markani Purana, the, yeah. the section of the Markani Purana that's dedicated towards um, elucidating the, the careers of the, the 14 Manvantaras of this epoch. Right. So it's a flimsy frame just it's to, a to conceit just so we can house it in the Manvantara section of the of the, Mark the Um They weren't bored like they weren't like let's just put it in there today or
0: yeah. it's, it's
1: basically my entire yeah, of words
0: to fill just throw it in <laughs> the, the, the,
1: basically what I do is the opposite. I said let's focus on the frame. Yeah. I focus on the frame boom. The Devi Mahatma is about kingship and restoring royal power. It prioritizes that over the pursuit of moksha. The merchant gets moksha. The king gets kingship. Look at the frame. It's telling you why the central episode is Devi restoring the throne of Mahisha. Nobody knew that the Devi Mahatmya was composed in an intricate ring composition until the study.
0: Yeah,
1: And that ring composition is supported by and, and even um, begun by uh, the, the frame narrative. Right, It's telling you a story with its very structure. It's, it's artful. And so part of what I do in studying, you know, studying Sanskrit narrative literature is Trying to come up with or, or sort of articulate um, methods for doing that in a synchronic fashion. One way is ring theory. Always pay attention to frames. Who is speaking? Who are they speaking to? Um, what's the circumstance? Right. That's going to tell you so much about the exposition within the text. And so, yeah, it sounds like um, I'm in good company. But anyhow, I oh no,
0: <laughs> I, I I I love that in your book is is like that was a. It was a beautiful um, insightful way to really just and quite honestly the brilliant way to look at the, the Devi Mahatmyam within a text. I mean, I feel like in some sense it's it was it's it's kind of there in your face staring at you, but because it's so obvious people just like go right past it, right? Like, especially when when, when they're when they're focusing on other things, right? It, it, in some ways it reminds me of, of like, even the framing when you look at the Mahabharata, the story of the, the Rama story in the Mahabharata, right? It's framed within the context of where Vanavasa of Yudhishthira, when he's like, oh, woe is me, my life sucks, who who has had it worse than me? And then here's two stories, Here, here's one of Nala and Damayanti and the one of Rama, right? And, then, and
1: do you remember who tells him that story?
0: Yeah, I do. I do. Who it, it, it was? It was Domia, their uh, their their priest, I believe. No, it,
1: it was Markandeya. Oh yeah, Mahatma. it was Markandeya.
0: You're correct. You're correct. Oh my so god.
1: My I'm I'm like, wait a minute. The whole Valmikida Mind thing was in the back of my brain, and the yeah. whole Davy Mahatmya thing in the Markandeya put I was in the back of my brain. I'm like, what the heck is up with Markandeya? So I talk a little bit about that in the in, in the in the Mahatmya book. Yeah, but for me, there's. There's a reason why Mark and Day is teaching them
0: about Rama. That's, yeah. that's
1: important somehow. Yeah. But anyhow, that's oh, it's, no. it's. Please continue.
0: No, no, I was just saying it's 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 amazing that you that you developed this or you you found this narrative framework and how it connects to these other narrative frameworks across Hindu tradition or Puranic tradition or what do you want to call it?
1: Well, that's the power. If you if you. Um, if you're watching an episode of wonder woman yeah or the movie or something yeah and if aquaman shows up and you don't you haven't watched the aquaman movie you're not going to get the richness of why aquaman is making a cameo appearance in this narrative there's a reason for that there's a very important reason why mark and is telling the pandavas themselves about the story of rama why is mark and Dea the one who has um that privilege what is it about him that's so exalted that he is overtly connecting the Sanskrit epics? That is important. Right. People don't ask those kinds of questions. You
0: know, right. Different
1: kinds of questions.
0: Well, it, it but, but that's, that's really fascinating to me. And, and going back to, to your book on this, like, so can you, can you tell us what that, that the ring, the ring narrative, the ring, structure? The ring
1: composition? Yeah. yeah. So ring composition is, is, is a structure that we see in the ancient world, uh, not just in, 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 in South Asia, but essentially um, the stories, let's just say there let's, if you hold it behind and there are five parts, say one, two, three, four, five. Yeah. The the midpoint, the middle thing is the thing you're supposed to focus on.
0: Yeah.
1: So you say five chapters, the third chapter is the most important chapter.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The first chapter relates to the last chapter. The second chapter relates to the fourth chapter you, you um. do, You come around. The midpoint is the keystone to the text. Okay. Um, I I just just this this really um, it's really concise phrase of Tolkien's there and back again. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there and back again. That's the hero's journey as well. Right. It ends up. You end up where you start. And whenever you have a frame narrative, you necessarily end up where you start because you're back in the, like um, 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 Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, yeah. the Witch, and the Wardrobe. They they end up where they start because then now they come back out from the wardrobe. But
0: right? you're different at this point. You've become a different Ex- Exactly,
1: person. so, so the, the text is structured as this ring. And the midpoint, Mary Douglas talks about this. I'm convinced Mary Douglas wrote that book right before she passed, just for my thesis. But Mary Douglas writes this book Having studied the Book of Numbers and various other literature, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's called Thinking in Circles. I can't quite remember the title, but for me, it was like it was the piece I needed. Like I knew that the Devi Mahatmya was doing this, but I didn't know what it was called.
0: <laughs> right, right, right.
1: And she gave me the theory to to realize, oh, this is oh, this is ring composition. The second this, the, the the second episode is the most crucial. This is the this is the Mahishasura Mardini pose. It's the it's this majestic vision of the Divine Mother, all decked out slaying Anisha, the most iconographically um, um, rich, famous moment of the Devi perhaps. Mm -hmm. It's in episode two of the text, because episode two, they call it the the, the uh, Madhyama act. Mm -hmm. They don't call the acts uh, um, act one, act two, act three. They call the acts act first act, middle act last you can't put a fourth or fifth not a right, right. you have to make keep this the middle act because this is the structure of the temple of text wow anyhow i digress uh, wh- <laughs> 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 what else do you want to know that has to do with something relevant to, uh, to other people <laughs>
0: <laughs> no 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 but this is what, it, it's it's awesome i love it i love it i love learning about this and I think a lot of our, our listeners would would love this idea too, because it now when they go back and think about their text, like when they look, read whatever put on or whatever they, they can start thinking about it that way too, in in how they approach it.
1: Well, this this whole framing journey of mine, I was I was asking why the David Mahatmya is framed by the king in exile, and that became a Ph.D. thesis. And as I'm doing that, I'm asking, well. Why is Devi Mahami in the Markandeya Purana at all? And that became a Journal of Vaishnava Studies article. And then I'm asking this question of, wait a minute. The Markandeya Purana is framed by four birds.
0: Mm. Four
1: birds are mouthing the works of Markandeya. And these four birds are descendants of the survivors of the burning of the Khandava and the Mahabharata. What the hell is going on here, kids? Like, what on earth is happening here? And not just anywhere in the Mahabharata, the end, the framing of the Adi Parvan, the terminal frame of the opening frame of the Mahabharata, is where these, these four birds have flown from to frame the Markani Purana. Clearly, this is important.
0: <laughs>
1: Clearly. Well, to my story brain, anyhow, maybe I'm just grasping at straws. but. Probably not, because it ended up getting published in the International Journal of Hindu Studies, that the, the, art, the, the, the thought process of, of, of why the Markandeya Purana is invoking the birds of the khandava and the burning of the khandava. So, 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 so upakyanas or subtails, as Hiltabaitl says, are not just meaningfully framed, but um, entire puranic works are framed. Yeah. And they're now even framed externally or intertextually sort yeah. of pointing to Mahabharata. So this is, this is, um, it's uh, it's dizzying and exciting. I mean, if you care about these things, otherwise you've switched off already. Oh, but, uh,
0: I, I love this. Question. No, not you, not you, yeah. the
1: listeners. I mean. Oh,
0: uh, who cares about listeners? I just care about me right now.
1: <laughs> okay, what else would you like to add?
0: No, so, uh, I mean, the role of Mark and Dan, it, so, can you explain why, why is the story of Devi in Markandeya. Why is Markandeya as a character so important to telling this magnificent story? Where 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 Devi first? This is the, the real first powerful Shakti motif, as as pure and all powerful as she is, coming out. Right. This is this is her it's, great.
1: It's um. It's the Devi's debut in Brahmanism.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's
1: her magnanimous debut.
0: Yeah. <laughs> And your question is other in all other stuff, but here she comes out like, "I am everything." Boom.
1: And and your question is about Markandeya.
0: Yeah, why why is why is he important to that?
1: Well, I have a sort of hypothesis about that. I don't know that we'll ever know, right? These aren't answers we'll find, but in my view, um, one of the most important features of Markandeya. What is Markandeya known for? He's known for surviving the yeah. last pralaya. Yeah. That is cataclysmically important because pralaya itself is a dilution of all things.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. like pralaya—it's not just a dilution of people or sages. It's a dilution of of, of the grahas themselves. It's a dilution the dilution of universe. the universe. Yeah. So how could a being, a human being, however sagacious, however exalted, like how could? Sage Markandeya survived Pralaya. This is telling you something very important about him. He represents preservation. Hmm. He represents pravati dharma.
0: And he's always he, connected he, to Vishnu in that sense, right? As like uh, Vishnu, case, is, uh,
1: Vishnu, Vishnu is who? Vishnu is what? Preserver incarnate. Devi does the dharma of uh, uh, Vishnu. This is why that article got put into the Journal of Vaishnava Studies, because what I was yeah. saying is, Devi and Markandeya and, and kings themselves, they represent the function, the cosmogonic function of Vishnu, right. preservation. Markandeya is preserved across Pralaya. In both, the in the Devi Mahatmya, we have a story about the Devi's uh, uh, salvific acts at Pralaya. In the Surya Mahatmya, another Mahatmya discovered, In the Markandeya Purana, it starts off with Surya's salvific acts at Pralaya. There is a theme of preservation and the work of kings, and the need to strive and remain in the mud of life. This, this, this. I can't quite. I need more evidence, but I'm convinced there's something there, Um, 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 and and this is related to why Markandeya is voicing the story of Rama, Mm. right?
0: Yeah, that's it's,
1: it's it's the poverty dharma piece. It's the poverty dharma piece. Rama has to come back from exile, hated or not. Rama's happiest in exile, you know.
0: Yeah, but 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 it's Sita. also fu- yeah. It's also funny that Markandey, who is neverthi dharma, who's never going to get married, who's 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 out on his own. Is espousing perfected dharma.
1: That is the <laughs> dharmic double helix. This is why it's a dharmic double helix. The sage teaches the king how to rule. It's brilliant.
0: Yeah.
1: Right? It's brilliant. It's,
0: it's, it's the same sage it goes with Bhishma, teaches the king how right? to rule. Like Bhishma teaches. He's you like, Shra. look, if you want
1: to. <laughs> exactly.
0: But it's so
1: powerful. Bhishma fallen. It's such. A, I don't know what they were smoking or what they were (laughs) chanting to come up with these just just beyond like like whether it was um inspired by substance or by the divine (laughs) bishma is laying supine on a bed of arrows right right he's bloodied he's this is the most bloody scene of the war he's bleeding from every pore and he's untouched like the lotus in the middle of the hurricane
0: yeah
1: he's 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 expositing and what is he expositing he's giving the crucial teachings for yudhishthira to be a dharma raja to be to be the king of dharma or dharma king however you want to take it
0: right
1: and he's saying despite all this despite where i end up right yeah you need to go and be a king you need to wage war when you need to wage war
0: you know i'll say it this way too it's it's so funny because in that same the when the the story happens you know yudhishthira Bhishma, bishma the bishma turns to krishna and says you tell him you know everything And krishna's response is no i this is your place it's so much like the way a guru is right why why go to a god and then god will say go to a guru you learn from him right so this is such a it's always through these texts like even when 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 the start of the mahabharata when they asked vyasa to say uh, the the mahabharata at some point he says he si tells vishupaina you, you you tell the, <laughs> the, the the mahabharata it's it's always passing down the knowledge through somebody else
1: it is and it's also what i call expositor import yeah the text is now imprinted with the energy and the biography of the expositor yeah it could be the same story but the person telling you the story is going to add the flavor of their own biography That's right. implicitly or explicitly right so bishma is telling him because what did bishma have to do look at his story look at what look at what he had to do to secure the kingship yeah look yeah. at the terrible vow he had to make
0: and the terrible right? things he did
1: and his whole life shows the problem ta- the evidence is the problematization of kingship in the text yeah and, and yet look at his advice to Yudhishthira.
0: and you know and this is sometimes i, I it frustrates me a lot with with uh, with hindus or people that read these texts sometimes is you we need to stop deifying all these people to a point where where, where you're saying oh see don't emulate them or don't don't talk about them that way the purpose of these texts is so that we can that we can we we can inter- interrogate them and 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 spend time as interlocutors with them and grapple with them and i think like you can't say oh don't call bishma massage like uh, massage misogy- he had misogyny in him the way he treated amba ambika abalika like you can't say that obviously he had at least he was also the pers- person that said if you love love the man go back to him but it's also let's grapple with the complexity of these beings
1: but the text itself does it is just is chastising vishma yeah the text itself chastises krishna yeah that's the power of the narrative the, 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 the that's the power the minute you have a black and white view of the mahabharata yeah. or the puranas or hinduism is the minute you're blind
0: oh i totally agree
1: because The text's job is to illumine multiple perspectives. It's a religion conference. It's not a diatribe. It's not a sermon. No. It's a conference, right? And that's the power of the text. But but to go back to your point, in my view, people, in my view, there there are two pitfalls that are very difficult for people to stay out of. Yeah. One pitfall, is um, looking to these narratives as, one pitfall is dismissing them as fantasy or nonsense, Yeah. right? One pitfall is just dismissing narratives as fanciful. Mm -hmm. And another pitfall is taking them as, you know, the gospel truth, pun intended. Mm -hmm. And to me, the power, the power of myth, the power of Purana, is to, to, to engage them as spiritually true, as metaphorically true, as, as the most insightful and eloquent teachers about human existence and the ascent of consciousness sure. in narrative form. So one need not take them as literally true to do that, to engage them in that way. And one need not take them as, as fancy or conceit or superstition these are um the the function of the Mahabharata and the Puranas in my view is pedagogical.
0: Sure sure but but I I would say even if you do take it literally true like then take it literally true take take the point that these texts are are interrogating their characters they're they're calling them out they're 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 putting them on 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 notice right when when Krishna gets chastised by Gandhari you know Krishna's like "I, I am uh, you can't do that to me. I'm God. You're you're dead. No, it's he takes a chastisement. Yeah, Why? but
1: Krishna. But Krishna, look at what Gandhari through her tapas and through her righteousness has done. She's she's cursed Krishna to the destruction of his entire clan.
0: Yeah, yeah. The text is saying. Yeah, lady has a point. <laughs> yeah, lady has a point. And he's like, all right, I, I'll take your, I'll take your, I'll take your curse, right? And and you know, there's a telling scene when when he's going. Uh, back to Dwarka, where he meets Uttanka. I'm sure you know this. Where 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 Uttanka like basically says, "You're God. You could have you could have done any of this. You could have changed any of this." And then uh, this, Krishna shows him his Vishvarupa and then and then it explains to him. Actually, and, and Uttanka like, "I'm going to curse you." And, and Krishna like, "Before you curse me, let me tell you. When I take, I when I take form as man, I, I behave as a man. When I take form as Naga, I behave as." He goes through all this. He limits himself to his, the role that he takes. But then the idea again is. We have to look at these gods, even if they're gods in the human context, cause they're human at this point. They're not playing the God role all the time.
1: Well, they're, they're, when we study Shakespeare and yeah. we're completely moved by the power of literature, Yeah, we're not too concerned about whether or not it actually literally happened. And sure. to me, that's the point. The point is that the truth is the world within the text. Mm-hmm. not the world behind the text there is a world within the text whether you believe that's a fictitious world or or not the, the the power is is leveraging what you see in the text for your life there's a course that i'm doing now at uh, a place called soma yoga institute called mythic wisdom for modern life mm. that's not a contradiction for me these ancient narratives <laughs> their job is to preserve um, life wisdom,
0: yeah.
1: insights that we will always need.
0: Sure,
1: right? But those insights need not only survive within a specific cultural, theistic, or devotional context. I, I
0: agree, totally. Agree. Right.
1: What else would you like to know?
0: <laughs> no, no. I mean, it, 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 it just—it just this conversation. I'm enjoying it just because there's so much to touch upon that I, I feel like it's—it's a. It's, uh, could go never-ending in many ways because there's so many different... Uh, uh, so can we talk a little bit about the... Uh, so what role in the Devi Mahatmya, it's, it's about her greatness, right? About her, about her... her Mahatmya. Yeah, Mahatmya, sorry, I say Mahatmya. That, I don't know why I said that, that was my bad. No,
1: no, what I mean to say is literally her, her it's about her Mahatmya.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's about her greatness. So why in this text is it framed within the context of a war between gods and the asuras and, and what about that is so particular to the king or to the merchant that would make if, if there is some reason for that well in
1: the first episode um vishnu has just sprawled out after Pralaya. Uh, yeah. he's going into his yogic slumber right he's going into his little retreat and madhu and kaitaba are born of his earwax essentially and they they run down to kill brahma and and brahma basically chants to the mother divine to awaken vishnu right because she's maya but she's also the way out of maya right yeah yeah um and it's, it's probably more in the second or third episode you're referring to where in both of these episodes, the the throne of heaven, uh, Indra's throne is usurped by demonic forces. Right. In, the, in in episode two, it's Mahisha. Episode three, it's Shumba Nishumba.
0: Right.
1: And what we have here is a problem. This is the problem of when wicked people are in positions of power. Mm-hmm we 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 know this problem i'm sure um we've lived this problem i'm sure yeah but the the, 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 the she the davi is a royal figure right her dharma is the dharma of kings queens her dharma is to preserve she does on the cosmic level what the king does on the earthly level hmm. Whenever there's imbalance and we need a course correction and someone fancies themselves too powerful, she comes and she kicks him in the butt and that's that. Right. Or decapitates them more likely. <laughs> um, uh, because, you know, kicking in the butt doesn't work and then beating them up with a baseball bat doesn't work and they're just intent on nonsense. So you just got to, you know, get the job done and move on. Violence. Um, <laughs> y- yes, but this is crucial. But she is showing that violence is uh, quintessential to the work of kings, to the work of Vishnu, to the work of the goddess to the work of preservation. We cannot be preserved in this world without violence, the violence required to eat, the violence required to safeguard ourselves against people who want to destroy us. This is crucial to the text, the justification of violence. So why do you think the the Durga Puja was the greatest uh, royal consecration festival known to India? because of the Davies' representation of the dharma of kings
0: wow um so how does the merchant connect then
1: the merchant's just um he's a lip service to liberty
0: <laughs> <laughs> because
1: the, <laughs> so, so the merchant the the, the, the merchant is also find himself in this forest um right. because his family steals his money and kicks him out basically. Right. They're both upset. The king and the merchant are both upset. They both receive sage counsel from Medhas, from the sage in the who teaches them about the glories of officer. Metas wisdom too, right? And then when they're funny. done, <laughs> this Exactly. Right. And, and the merchant's name, Samadhi. <laughs> his name is Samadhi, right? The merchant. So it's, it's archetypal. It's, it's, right. His name is Samadhi. So at the end of it, they both go and together create a murti, offer water, fire, incense, uh, chanting. They even offer the blood of their own limbs. Mm. This is homage to, to poverty and the Dharma of Kings. And after three long years, she appears and she says... I'm so pleased by your penance, whatever you wish. I'm a giver of boons, whatever you wish I will grant to you.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, noble king and 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 oh, 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 wise merchant. And the king says, I just want my kingdom back. Yeah. And the merchant says, I'm done with this bullshit world. He doesn't say that, but I'm saying that. He's like, yeah. give me, please grant me what I need, that insight that takes me beyond minus and minus. I'm done. Forget it. yeah, yeah. Enough of this, money counting. And the Devi says, no problem. Blesses the merchant with moksha. And she, she blesses the king with uh, the power to reclaim his, his kingdom through force. He even uses the term through force. Go, I bless you to go. And by my grace, you will overpower your enemies just as they've overpowered you. Because you are the rightful king. And yeah. so... But she doesn't say, oh my God, what a foolish king, and wow, you glorious merchant.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right?
1: There are others, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, um, Wendy Doniger makes the argument in um, The Hindus and Alternate History that the merchant is the hero of the text. One may well, I understand why one may think so, because moksha is an ideal in Hinduism. But the text clearly, in my view, or at least the view of the book I wrote. <laughs> says that No, um, no, no, no. The king is the hero of the text. The merchant is an afterthought. She blessed the king without chastisement and she doubles up his blessing and says, And when you're done, I'm going to exalt you to the Lord of an age as the son of the sun. Surya, preservation. King, yeah. preservation. Devi, preservation. Markandeya, preservation. The, the purpose of these narratives is to slightly have the pendulum swing back away from the, the let's all renounce and sing Kumbaya.
0: Right. Right. Ideology.
1: Right. Um, 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 and what's interesting. So for me, the the, 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 the dual booning, this is a dharmic double helix in one fell swoop. She's blessing someone to lord over creation and someone to opt out of creation. And she is primordial power. She's, she has to have these dual, um, manifestations of power, right, right? right? And so, so I'm not sure that I a- answered your question. No, you, you, uh, you totally
0: did. I mean, that makes total sense. It, it, to me, it's it's that's just awesome. That's, but 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 the idea that there has to be a hero again to me is doesn't make sense within uh, the narrative structure uh, for for a lot of Hindu texts. The because you because we have the concept of purusharth that if you want to go down this path here, go down this path. Like if you, want, if you want to be part, you want to be rich, you want to be wealthy, you want to follow dharma, just go down that path, right? It's, it's not saying that you have, to, you have to get moksha. If you want moksha, if, you, if, you, if you're done with this world, here's the path to it, right? That's what I always feel like the texts are trying to say is live in this world as long as you want to be, but if you want to get out, here's the way out. Oh, if
1: I was teaching a course, where was it? Had such a good time. Oh, yogic studies. I was teaching this course, it really interested students, right? I was teaching a course called Yoga and Hindu Mythology. Who, yeah. who knew so many people were interested in learning about Hindu Mythology, quote unquote? And so, um, one of the questions that came in one of the QA's is, um, you know we had answered all the questions uh, <laughs> pertaining to the course material. And for whatever reason, people tend to be fascinated about my path or life or perspectives beyond. So they end sure. up asking me these questions from beyond. And one student says, um, do you need to be a vegetarian to be a yogi? <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I, said, I love the way you said that. Like, like, do you need to be a vegetarian to be like a yogi? <laughs> <laughs> like oh my god but that's not <laughs> quite um
1: no it was it was a very well-intentioned question in yeah. my view and um i said uh i said if you want my honest opinion um there are vegetarians in this world who are just you know um malicious people
0: terrible people and
1: and there are beef eaters who are who are uh, you know on the road to sainthood like yeah, yeah. so what I, what I what i said is that um in my view, the mark of a, of a yogi is conduct, yeah, not food choice. But what about a himsa? What about the animals? I said, well, if you're called to activism or that's your job or you're calling, great. And if not, then it's not your problem that people do what they're going to do with their lives. But the, I think the most crucial piece, she said, well, how can you say that? How can you believe that? And I said, look, how could you be a Hindu and, and value these things? And, you know, you seem like you're a spiritual man. How could you say that? yeah it's quite simple if you if you actually adopt an indic or a hindu worldview you know that it takes us bloody millennia to get anywhere (laughs) why would you assume that everybody like you sweet cheeks is ready to give up meat let them have their lifetimes of whatever they need to have why do you assume that everybody should be ready for moksha right now where is this where is this collapsing of all of, of all the of samsara into one uh, generation It's yeah, just, right. it's not realistic right, people have right. vasanas they have to work them out let but them work out their vasanas it, it's
0: it, that's so true and this is like what i find a lot of people is moksha, moksha 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 i'm like for me i have no desire for moksha right now i am happy with the the path i'm following whatever i'm doing As long as I'm doing dharma I don't care right like as long as I'm trying to be dharmic the rest doesn't matter to me right this is good
1: so I have a I have um (laughs) so in my early 20s when I was seriously spiritualizing and (laughs) uh, starting my practice um even shortly after having met my teacher I actually seriously considered renouncing the world
0: yeah, I did too. When I was like, 10. believe it or not, I yeah.
1: seriously, seriously considered it. Um, in retrospect, obviously, it's um, there's work to be done, right? Yeah, there's work to be done, and 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 being in the world, but not of the world. I think there's this great wisdom there.
0: Yeah, no, hundred percent. I, I totally agree. Um, I, I just feel this. There's just overemphasis emphasis on moksha, where apparently moksha is super easy nowadays. You just do X, Y, Z, and there you are when it's considered the hardest thing in, in all of our texts like it's just it's it's, it's
1: it is the most it, it, assuming the indian world classical hindu worldview yeah it is the most arduous undertaking a human can undertake
0: right and, and the funny thing is also if you go down the path of bhakti moksha is actually even thrown aside too no like we don't want moksha we just want constant communion with 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 bhagavan you know whether it's a thousand lifetimes if you you know like there's you know a lot of these uh you know um, bhakti saints will say i have no desire for moksha just have me born again and again serving you on this world it's it's, it's very similar like it's, it's another way out of neverty it's like back to neverty but, but but it's
1: it, it, it's like okay well we're all in grade 2 and 3 and maybe some of us are grade 5 and yeah. 6 and we all are intent on finishing our, our doctoral dissertation this year yeah and and the idea is is progress the idea is where are you now what are the life lessons you're called to learn now yeah. what are the patterns that are tripping you up now what are the situations you continually attract now mm. How do you strategize out of where you are now? Not obsess about an ideal that is well beyond your grasp, despite the fact that you can download somebody's book online and apparently be enlightened.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where are you now?
1: Where are you now? And can you be further along your path, your vision of spirituality, your vision of human perfection than, than you were yesterday? I think that is the fruit is in the lessons that are right in front of your face and Prakriti is happy to send them your way. Right, right? And if you bypass the lessons of the School of Life, what hope do you have of graduating?
0: Oh, I agree. So let me ask you this question then. Um, so we've talked a little bit about, about karma and, and Sure. Um, is, do you, th- when it comes to the Dei Mahatmiyam, uh, do you think it is a text that's talking, do you think it, it I'm trying to rephrase this correctly, let me put it this way. Um, is there free will or does karma determine everything it, it, according to do you, the Devi Mahatmyam, Do you think there is a sense, because I mean the way I read, tend to read a lot of our, our texts is end up being like free will is kind of an illusion of sorts and that we are all bundles of karma playing out the way we're playing. So how do you think that this text in particular addresses that issue? <laughs>
1: I gave a talk last year called uh, free will and karma. Mm. Um, And I think much of what I had to say in that talk is probably relevant to your question. Are you more interested in what we see in the Devi Mahatmya? Are you more interested in the question of um, free will versus destiny?
0: Well, um, we can do both. Uh, (laughs) But I mean, I think what the Devi Mahatmian says, we can start with and then maybe expand because, yeah, maybe that works.
1: Okay. So the king's uh, power was stolen. Yeah. Maybe we can say these are the forces of Daifa, destiny. And he is beside himself because he's like, I'm a good king. Like, what the hell? Mm-hmm. And he goes into the forest and then he, he 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 takes solace in the presence of the sage at the ashrama. And uh, he's still sort of, what the hell? I can't stop these vasanas in my brain. Mm-hmm. I'm worried about a kingdom that I don't have. That's ridiculous. He meets the merchant. The merchant's also worried about money he no longer has. And the sage gives them initiation about, Maya, you're all under the sway of Mahamaya. You're like these birds, back and forth all day long. They think my baby will love me forever and ever, but as soon as they've sufficiently fed them, fledglings fly away,
0: mm.
1: and they—they're basically expediting the departure of their beloveds. They're not securing human beings, uh, beings in general, like blocks of wood in the ocean. Right, right. They come together and they separate. So. So the sage gives them this teaching and then he tells them about the glory of the goddess. And the sage says, you know what? Maybe you should take refuge in the goddess. This, I've told you about her greatness. She great, she's bhakti mukti badayini, you know, she, yeah. she grants liberation, she grants enjoyment, she grants kingship, go. And what happens? Do the king and the merchants sit on their laurels and wait for destiny to do his thing? No. No, they take action. They go and they worship her. They perform penance and through their penance, they obtain a boon, you see? Mm -hmm. So clearly the text is indicating the significance of taking action and making decisions of your own accord. The Devi doesn't say you're destined to receive a boon. The Devi says, I am pleased Open bracket by what you decided to do with your free accord, close bracket Mm -hmm. (laughs) by your penance. So clearly, free will is validated in this text. What I would also say, and this I could easily probably do an hour of a conversation on, but what I'll try to succinctly say is that the question of free will versus determinism is something that the conscious mind can't resolve because yeah. both are true and they work in tandem. And so uh, when you're looking at karmic theory, someone's uh, prarabdha karma is the karma that's ripening for them. Sure. That they're experiencing is the power of destiny. Destiny delivers their ripening karma. Right. But the ripening karma occurs because of actions that they undertook by virtue of their own free will. Right. So and, yeah. and in the tandem of the ripening of destiny, you have the ability to act, either make a bigger mess or clean up the mess you're in, or do nothing. Right. Or whatever. So so destiny and free will are both true and work in tandem in a way that can't fully be cognized.
0: Right. Interesting. Because I take a different position than that. I take the position that free will doesn't exist. In the way we think about free will because all we are are bundles of karma and vasanas and samskaras controlled by our chitti and our and
1: what does karma mean
0: karma means so this is where the vedantic aspect comes in right this is where the idea that the atma itself is not making decisions atma itself is not acting the atma is the bhokta, is the enjoyer the, the yes the, yes the, yes the one that's sitting back observing it all. Yes, yes. The yes. Maya is that the Atma believes itself to be doing all these things, when all these things are prakriti. They're happening happening naturally because of the, the flow of the Trigunas and uh, the, all the Vasanas and all these things are playing yes, out together.
1: I understand. I understand exactly what you're saying. Let us focus on the prakriti. The problem yeah. is in the prakriti.
0: Yes. Yes
1: let's just focus from within the prakriti yeah within the prakriti karma is generated by free action
0: yes but so, but, but that's also where where krishna's response in the gita is right i'm spinning all beings around and and this is why like it's beautiful in, in the gita too where he calls where he says, you know, and, and he ends up saying, uh, uh, why does he use the name Savya Sachin, right? Because Arjuna is dual handed. Each hand is like an instrument. So he's, and because each hand, Arjuna treats like an instrument, Krishna is saying, you are my instrument. Like from the I, perspective,
1: from the perspective, perspective of the divine, yeah, there is no free will.
0: Yeah.
1: From the perspective of the individual, there most certainly is free will.
0: So 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 that's what I mean. And they're both
1: happening, they're both real.
0: Yes. Yes. I will I will say if
1: you are not capable of free action, how could you possibly be accountable or responsible for your actions?
0: Well, yeah, and this is where your perspective on saying this is in Prakriti the Mahat the Hamkara is the decision maker, even though it is part of Prakriti, is it's connected to karmic consequences, the way it is. It, it, the way it is in this particular well, Purusha
1: doesn't fall under the sway of karma, if you want to use a Sankhya.
0: Like yeah, Purusha
1: yeah. or the or the Atman is beyond the Sway of Karma.
0: Yeah, but it believes itself to be
1: through uh the Jivatman.
0: Yeah, yeah, through the various koshas and all this other stuff, right? You end up in the situation where these entities think there are. The,
1: the, the, the Padamatman believes itself to be the Jivatman. The Jivatman most certainly is under the sway of Prakriti.
0: Oh yeah, so and this is where we'll end up having, depends on your particular sampradaya, right? Like with the, I, I'm much more like the Sri Vaishnavite sampadaya or Kashmir Shaivism where the, you know, um, you know, Bhagavan isn't ever under Prakriti. It's always but well, not Bhagavan, I'm
1: talking about you and me and the other yeah, monkeys yeah. in this world.
0: Yeah, but, but, but we're always separated from Bhagavan, right? So that's like in these systems. We're always distinct attributes of Bhagavan. We're not like, there's no kaivalya in, in, in these systems where, where you merge and become, you, you lose the sense of oneness.
1: What I mean to say is you in your life
0: mm.
1: have made decisions of yeah, your own yes, free will. yes. And as have I. Yeah. So what I mean to say is that then clearly free will is a principle that is operating within the human experience.
0: Right. But, but then how do you deal with like, for example, people like, you know, the neuroscience and Dan Dennett, right? I mean, it, it, this, is, this stuff's interesting to me because I feel like how does the, 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 the karma theory and the free will theory deal with, with modern scientific understanding of the way the subconscious works, the way... We make decisions the way we engage with the world based upon our conscious versus unconscious mind, right? Like, like scientific. I mean, these studies show that more often than not, I mean, most of the time, ninety nine percent of the time, your unconscious is acting before you even know you're doing something. So, how does that play in the mix?
1: In the mix, in what sense?
0: Like, we're not actually consciously deciding anything most of the time. It's already being decided by in the back. We, we
1: are. We are not people are propelled by vasanas
0: yeah yeah
1: those vasanas are unconscious yes so a man is looking for a partner whether a woman a man one of each whatever
0: sure a person
1: a purusha <laughs> yeah is looking for a partner yeah and consciously they're looking for a partner and unconsciously they're sabotaging it unconsciously oh they forget to respond to the email uh, the body language or the messages you're saying, I'm not available, because right. they're they're consciously looking, but they're unconsciously afraid of commitment. So what this is is that they are consumed by Prakriti
0: right?
1: Th- right? Sure. They are mechanistic, and you can predict what they'll do. They're not able to break the pattern. They are they are a slave to the pattern, right? Because they're propelled by Prakriti now, for an individual, so if you're coaching an individual and you're facilitating them breaking the pattern, what you're facilitating is the awareness and the strength to harness their free will to overpower the unconscious vasana.
0: Hmm.
1: Okay. To break the pattern. And that requires chitta, that requires consciousness. So whether people come to me for consciousness or not, whenever we help them with the bullshit of their lives, and we all have bullshit lives, yeah, whenever yeah. they break a pattern, they always become more conscious. Mm. Mm. Okay. Because the Chitta Shakti and the Kriya Shakti, they're just aspects of the same, Atman. Yeah, yeah, right? yes. So yes. so, so the more conscious an individual is on this level within Prakriti,
0: yeah.
1: the more they're able to act freely, free of their patterning yeah right so that is the power so it's the it's the free will right Uh, taken to its extreme free will is moksha you're fully free
0: yeah but uh, yeah but that's from the level of the purusha again where it's already been free it just now sees itself again as free because it's not looking itself vis-a-vis prakriti it's just seeing itself i
1: understand your perspective in my experience, that doesn't help people become better people.
0: No, you're right. No, no. I, I, I so, it, no. What what I mean
1: to say is, I understand your perspective entirely, and yeah. and I, I respect it fully. What I'm saying is, um, we can't have a conference of self-realized souls if we're not self-realized.
0: No, I, I so I agree with you. So I, I, hundred percent on board. Where I think like free will is a total reality within prakriti, as in a conventional reality, in the way Shankara uses vihāra. Uh, in, yes in, in this world right? so
1: so from the perspective of that philosophy we have the illusion of free will yes but from the perspective of the maya in which we live free will is as real as this table 100%. is as 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 everything else is and yeah. so this is so yes so it's, it's a question of perspective
0: yeah so i mean that to me is uh it's so empowering in so many ways isn't it like it's both empowering even if you believe yourself to be like just the consequence of karma that's empowering for me many ways where i start looking at the world is i don't have control i just need to i need to accept and move with it
1: there is profound wisdom in many places yeah Uh, but there's profound wisdom in the serenity prayer profound when you think about it god grant me the serenity to accept the things i cannot change yeah Please help me to deal with my prarabdha, whatever the hell it is, because yeah, I can't yeah. do anything about it. Yeah, yeah. I can't have a partner for twenty years, so be it. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. God grant me the courage, the vidyum, the will to change yeah. the things I can. You don't need to have diabetes; it's not your prarabdha. It's your kriyamana karma. Get on the treadmill. Yeah, yeah. Whatever, right? To right. change the things I can, and the hardest part is the third line. The veka, God grant me the wisdom to know the difference. In my humble opinion, people spend so much time exerting so much shakti on things they cannot change. Yeah. And they make so many excuses to not deal with the things that they can.
0: i totally on board there. I uh, For me, it's just, I totally agree. I think you're 100% right. I, I focus mostly on like I can't change anything. I so I just do whatever I little I can in my own head to to address it. You know, it, it, it's it's. Uh, I can't change people's feelings. I can't change people how people are going to interact with me. I can't change how the world is. I'm accepting of it. It, it gives me a great comfort to accept all. it all. It's so it it. it I, I don't get angry that often anymore. Where before I'd be like, oh, why don't you why don't you believe me? Why don't you listen to me? I'm like, fine. You don't want to listen. You go your path. Enjoy. You no, you'll come back some other time.
1: So detachment has come.
0: Yeah, in some sense. I mean, obviously there's some level of attachment you have to be, I mean, to engage in the world. Um, I don't know. It's a, it's, uh, I think I've convinced a few other people, not me. Again, I don't think I convince anyone. I think there's just, their mind finds a particular idea and they, they assign to it. But it's just, it's a beautiful, I mean, both these ideas are incredibly beautiful of, of ways to engage with the world. If taken properly, it's never, but either way, it should never be like Krishna says, again, it should never be a case of not doing anything. Right. It should never be a case of just uh, um, deciding not to act, whether you, whether you believe in karma or not act.
1: Yogastha Kuru Karmani.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Kuru, Kuru Karmani. He's
1: commanding him. Go.
0: Just act. So
1: within the realm of the Kurukshetra, yeah. The Kurukshetra. Yeah. Which, which is hilarious. Within the field of Kuru, yeah, he's saying Yogastha Kuru, he's saying, go act. Yeah. However illusory it might be to me, it's real to you. And if you don't harness your free will, you're gonna make a big bloody mess,
0: yeah,
1: of of everything, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> But this is great. <laughs> You're right, the Vyola Kuru, they're both Code of Us. They're both actors on both sides. <laughs> just act. <laughs> um, it, it, I mean, like the etymal, when you start learning what these words mean and you look at it from like multiple angles, it's, it's brilliance. Oh my God, that narrative brilliance is just overwhelming
1: the narrative has the power to uh, say multiple things at the same time. Yeah. Right. That's, that's, that's one of the great powers of narrative. And it also has the power to teach you when you least expect it, because it's not preaching. It's it's just, um, you can just be, it's not taking out the sword and starting to fence with you. It's yeah. just showing, it's telling you a story, and then you can take what you want from the story. And not just, um, and that's exactly how the, the stories of the Mahabharata work for the, for the interlocutors, where where um, Markandeya is like, well, you think you got Rama, do you, son? Let me tell you the story of Rama.
0: <laughs> yeah, but that's so. My cousin and I were talking about this, and I noticed him with his with his daughter. I mean, his wife with with their daughter. She starts crying, and then they're like, they're like, Lalita, you want to hear a story? She just stops, right? And then like but but this is like what even with this show like oh my woe is me woe is me you know instead of instead of giving him like oh you should not feel sorry for yourself it's you know what let me tell you a story listen to a story and then suddenly like the preachiness goes away the the story takes over and it changes you and like it's beautiful i mean wow because
1: a story is not encoding information it is but it is showing you a transformation. So the, the path of the protagonist, the path of the characters, there is a transformation of the consciousness within right. that story. And when you, it, this is why when you have a great story, whether it's a film or a, a novel or a pudana even though you know what's gonna happen in the end, yeah. you read it over and over again because it's taking you on that journey,
0: right? Yeah. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, even, even conversations like this, right? Like if we're trying to, if I'm trying to convince you of a position, you're more recalcitrant, you're gonna sit there and be like, no, I, I'm not going to. But if I tell you my life experience and those, and those viewpoints are in there, you're more likely to, to connect and like, let it go. Like, this is why I think like people trying to prove other people wrong. Well, you're, you're racist because X, Y, Z doesn't make sense because people won't see themselves that way but if you tell a story how for example you have dealt with something that shifts them in a little bit right
1: well they're listening right if i if i tell a story about feeling like an outsider yeah and going through a journey and how difficult it was that a a man who was gifted with great intelligence thought he was too dumb for a (laughs) for a ba it's not me that's just the, the the i was given this i'm not boasting I'm saying I was gifted with this right but I had this idiotic thought that I couldn't do a BA so I left school because of the social issues and they're listening because you're not blaming anyone for anything right you're just sharing the perspective you're giving them insight into the human experience
0: yeah that's entire right? narrative right it's so amazing like I just can't get over something this magical it, it really is like magic it, to me like narratives is magic it's because it just works at almost every level. Well, they
1: are, they are the most profound ways of pedagogy, not just for an individual, but for a civilization, for a culture. Nothing holds or, 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 or helps to craft a zeitgeist or an ethos or an imaginaire like story. This is where, this is the work of culture. That's yeah. why the stories that we believe and the stories we hold they they, um, they they bind us unconsciously to certain values and ways of seeing. Yeah, and understanding the stories that guide our civilization. This is why the Mahabharata is called the Mahabharata. It's telling you the story of a people and the values therein. It's really, it's um, it's it's sort of stitching the ethos of what we think of as classical Hinduism.
0: Yeah, That's- yeah, absolutely. You know, like I, I, I mean, w- until we told stories, none of us, I mean, weren't human beings, right? We were. We're just like any other animal, and the storytelling ability really brought us out into into fullness of of what we are. And I think that's a uh, it's beautiful, and I, I love that you're you're bringing that out in your in your work and the focus. I wish there were more people like you doing more more uh, narrative engagement, focusing on truths of the story, what the story, the, the message of, of of these texts, and how they're going about doing it, because. Even the method they're doing it is, I, I, in many ways, I find to be brilliant, innovative.
1: Yeah, there is um, It's difficult to crack the nut of a story, though. At times, to to consciously see what it's doing. Yeah. So it's understandable why someone would rather enjoy the story or study, uh, study something else. But studying a story, you're kind of switching between being in the story and then observing the story. So I understand why. It's not always the easiest fit to be a scholar of story, right? Because scholarship and storytelling involve different aspects of self.
0: Yes, yes, right. Um, it, but it's awesome. Um, I know we're we're hitting upon like the two and a half hour mark here. So, um, what are what else? Are you, what else you got going on? I mean, uh, right now, like, what are you working on? What's what's coming up?
1: I. What's coming up? I'm creating a course for the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies on the Hindu goddess. That'll be fun. That won't be out for good, uh, probably towards the end of the year. But I have currently I've started two private courses this week. One is called the Hindu Tapestry. It's an intro to, to Indian religions. There's one coming up in a couple of days called Faces of Power. It's a course on on, on the Devi, on, on Lakshmi, on Kali, on Durga. Mm-hmm. Um, and the great thing about the courses I do on the private platform is, you know, while they're responsible and rigorous and I harness, I leverage my academic training, I have license to be soulful. I have license to share uh, insights and, and life wisdom in a way that may not be quite appropriate in an academic setting or even a continuing study setting. So people can go to Rajbalcorn.com and see my current courses. There's also a scholarship tab Um, where they can actually just download articles like the the article on the marketing put on the Mabharata, the article on, um, on, 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 on the Devi fulfilling Vishnu's role.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, So that's pretty much it. I teach online courses. I do a bunch of one-on-one life coaching work and um, uh, uh, ideally find the time to write um, articles, not so much in the last semester, but Hey, (laughs) maybe the next,
0: I mean, that's you got a lot going on, and I, I, you know, like you've talked about this before, but I think it's really interesting how much online training, online schooling, online education has become uh, so powerful in the past, especially past year. You know, I think you you've been on like the cusp of, of that for quite a while. Um, is it is it is it something you can speak on as to you know? outside of the apparent benefits of of being able to take a class anywhere, where do you think online education is going to sit going forward, you know, post-pandemic, you know, is it going to be something more that universities and, you know, reputable universities like Oxford and University of Toronto are going to be doing more of, or is it going to be back to regular business?
1: Um, Without question, much of the online initiatives will stay, not all of them, because there is something to be said about face-to-face learning and, and real-time conferences. Yeah. But nevertheless, um, if I had to fathom a guess, I'd say a good number of university courses will remain online. Yeah. Um, and the universities, uh, I feel that we are living through a profound transformation that we're not going to understand for 100 years. Um, and part of that is exacerbated by the pandemic and people connecting online. Um, So I don't think online education is going anywhere. I think that now that the academy was forced online because of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. it's no longer sort of the B-list or it's no longer lowbrow. Now you can take a a, a course with a reputable scholar online and it opens up possibilities for others to join. Um, So I I think it'll be a mainstay. I think podcasts and online learning will only grow in coming years as we experience the the labor pains of birthing a globe
0: right right um do you have any other outside of those projects you're working on do you have anything else that's uh um big on any other podcasts you go on any other shows that that you're planning to launch
1: uh no as for the podcasting just the new books in indian religions um Oh, actually, no, you must have, you must be psychic. I forgot, but I do want us to start a podcast, but I don't know what it is yet. <laughs> <So hold laughs> but I've been asked a number of times and I'd like to start, I, I don't want to give up the, I have no desire. I want to continue the service to the academic yeah. community. Right. But I want a podcast where I'm not necessarily restricted to someone's publication. Mm. I want like yourself, the free range of emotion to engage someone about their life. So there's some podcasts sort of in the back of my brain that has to be Turned out sometime later this year right other than that really uh my life is uh tons of one-on-one life consulting life coaching work scholarship um and online teaching teaching courses different platforms that's pretty much it
0: okay awesome uh is there any other topic that you think that we didn't touch upon uh that you think we should or uh are we uh tapped out for right now (laughs)
1: No, I think it's always the journey, right? Um, yeah. I, I would, no, I think we touched on, I didn't really have a particular agenda. I, I think that, I think we touched on pretty much everything that, that would be appropriate for sure. for the podcast. I would say that I really encourage people to engage narrative texts yeah. Uh, Sanskrit narrative texts, uh, in particular, but I would engage people to in to 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 I would encourage people to engage narrative texts through the lens of what we can learn, not necessarily about India or Hinduism, hmm. but what we can learn about ourselves. Yeah. yeah. Right. That is a very powerful maneuver, and I think it'd be very useful for people.
0: Absolutely. Um, if people want to reach out to you, where can they find you? And
1: how do they read it? that's where you can find pretty much everything the scholarship the coaching the online courses there's a contact form there okay. so please by all means um, reach out if you're interested in some of the curriculum that's being offered or even ideas for future curriculum I'm always open to creating new courses um, really anything if you think I could be of service whether one-on-one whether teaching whether a scholarly collaboration know i'm 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 open to connecting with others as i continue to figure out what my dharma is in this world
0: (laughs) yeah well i uh thank you so much for your time i you know uh professor balkar this was amazing i know i had great 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 time learned a lot not only reading your book and your articles but listening to your new books uh in hindu studies but now new books in indian religions uh, i i i totally i learned so much from you and it's, it's you're inspiring so thank you so much for everything
1: thank you very much for having me and thank you for the work that you do um one quick thing i'll say before i go is sure. very quick why did you name the podcast the way you named it
0: Meru. I named it Meru because um, Meru is connected to everything in all worlds, um, and it's connected to Buddhism, Hinduism, Jainism, and Sikhism. So it, I wanted it to be where we can discuss any of these traditions and anything connected to these traditions, um, and connected to the modern world. You know, it, it was it's very all encompassing, and it, it has the the vision of being central to the universe. Is really why great,
1: right. yeah. Um, may I share sort of the mythic significance of Meru in my yeah, brain?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, the the uh,
1: probably apropos to what you're doing, but the two dimensions that come to mind that I think are quite, um, uh, quite engaging is, uh, you know, Meru was the churning pole. Probably one of the most powerful narratives I've ever come across yeah. is the churning of the ocean, right? Yeah where dark and light have to come together yeah
0: um
1: um um, there's so much there the 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 birth of rahu um, the birth of lakshmi there's just so 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 much there but but the axis around which all that takes place is miru so so to to be a still point in all the churning that you know the the churning of ideas or the churning of opinions can be there and to be a platform that that is open to the churning that's really uh cool and the other piece that really resonates is um meru as an axis mundi Mm. as a point uh a a point through which heaven and earth meet Right. right right and this idea of um um religious mythic uh ideas being brought down into mundane um academic social discourse. I think.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I appreciate that. It's one of the reasons why we have another series where we deal with uh, other religious traditions and we call that (laughs) Meru-Mantan. The the churning of the Meru because we bring on people from Judaism, Christianity, um, we're trying to get people from Islam to talk about their traditions, our traditions, the points of difference, points of uh, similarities, and and just kind of like engage and, and do that churn, the dance. That is oh.
1: helpful. May the journey continue. And thank you for having me on your podcast.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> Yamunati Re Gayati Vanamali Gayati Vanamali Madurum Gayati Vanamali